time. Okay. Great. Excellent. Me too. So, yeah, I guess that's, uh, yeah, I'm ready to begin whenever you are. Yeah, sure. I'm ready. All right. Well, welcome to uh, The Beautiful Toilet. Uh, this is a very uh, pivotal episode, I think, because I'm very pleased to be joined by Jack Mason, uh, a media critic, as I've described him, and uh, the host of uh, one of the best and most transgressive podcasts that's around uh, the Perfume Nationalist. Um, so welcome to The Beautiful Toilet. And Thanks thank for having for me. Yeah, of course. I've listened to all of your episodes in the last few weeks and really oh, enjoyed wow. them. Wow, thank you. That's awesome. And, you know, that's quite an honor because um, I'm sure you know this, but, like, there really would be no Beautiful Toilet if not for the Perfume Nationalist. Um <laughs> It's uh, I, it was in particular it was a uh, walk through the mist with Neat Salt and Sane meme, uh, and there was something so cathartic about the way that episode begins with um, basically like an oral history of uh, the coronavirus, um, which I yeah I still insist on saying the coronavirus is a kind of uh, it, what's the word? It's a way of um, it's my little protest because you know there's this constantly evolving lexicon and every like all the libs like they got the software update and st started saying COVID nineteen, and mm -hmm. you know as a as a tribute to those uh, early months I uh, I insist on coronavirus if not CCP virus or Xi Jinping tyrannical tyrant uh, evil dictator virus but um yeah I appreciate that you always say CCP virus to remind people because. <laughs> As we all know, the history of the last two years is constantly being erased, um, mm -hmm. which is why that Gone with the Wind episode uh, that came at the end of the first year um, is really important to me because I can point to that and say we were ahead and <laughs> saying it early on before uh, you know it went through the pipeline of dirtbag leftists to libtard to all of that to where it seems to be going now where it's going to disappear and everyone will pretend to not have uh, participated in all of the evil mm -hmm. yeah i guess um i don't know i just um i think listening to that episode in particular um was really like what made me like want to make the jump into podcasting and it took a few months to get that off the ground i think i realized pretty early on that i wasn't going to find a second mic for this um and uh you know but i i guess part of it is just like the pairing of gone with the wind with this uh, oral history i don't know if this was like totally impromptu or if you had kind of planned to do this but it seemed like very uh, thematically uh consistent I had planned to make Gone with the Wind the finale of the first season, and um, that didn't work out, uh, and so I just went into the second season with the plan of concluding it there um, with no foresight into what would eventually occur, um, but thematically it worked much better after the second season than it would have earlier because... Um, the China virus and everything associated with it represented such a massive uh, overhaul and erasure of uh, the bliss um, of life as it once was. Um, and everyone seemed to be encouraging this change based on spurious racial politics, so that also played into it as well. So um, the, the way that the... As we say in that episode, the way that the libs uh, stole that election was 
the intermingling of racial grievances and uh, riots and disorder and all of that with uh, the idea of the virus itself when they unveiled in uh, like midway through the summer that white supremacy was the real virus. That was their genius move. Yeah, and it was uh, for me personally, you know, uh, the first like uh, six months or so of the CCP virus were actually like, you know, uh, I, I, people are getting criticized for like romanticizing that time. But I had a good time, unironically, because I was making bank on unemployment and like the novelty of the masks was still there. You know, I kind of had like this fancy that, uh, you know, maybe I'll be like something like the the very like attractive, like fashionable Chinese students that uh, smoke against the policy of uh, NYU outside of Bob's <laughs> library. And uh, I think like uh, the moment that I turned on it, like uh, probably like late in the summer was uh, just um, the recognition that uh, I would never be like them because they have the mandate of heaven and it's something that's so intuitive to them. And like, you know, they don't really look that ridiculous wearing the mask the same way that uh that Americans do. Yeah. Asians look, uh, kind of appropriate, uh, and cinematic wearing the mask. It's just one of those things. I remember like seeing in like the mid nineties, like pictures of like Japanese people in Tokyo and the, <laughs> from, from like the late eighties wearing the masks. And it's just one more eccentricity of, you know, the other end of the world. Yeah, and it um, seemed kind of exotic, like, uh, it, you know, before it was so universal, like, it just seemed like this kind of, like, exotic uh, 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 accessory that these mysterious people from the Orient brought over, and so I think there was something very uh, sexual about it for that reason as well. But um, now, like, uh, you know, after living with it for two years, like, I can't even stand it on them, like, I'm... Uh, you know, I have like this whole affectation for the beautiful toilet of like these old Chinese movie stars and, uh, you know, old granny music from the 30s or whatever. And like when I think about these uh, these Chinese like uh, Shanghai movie stars and singers, like these beautiful girls, like with their faces covered in masks, it's just like so viscerally upsetting. Oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were all sorts of fantasies about ways that uh, this could be some sort of exciting transformation um, or, you know, at least something like visceral, like people would be forced into action uh, through some violent apocalyptic collapse. But of course, the lamest thing possible happened, uh, which seems totally planned. And it's that uh, people were brainwashed into becoming uh, weaker and more effete and uh, just crazed and superstitious. Um, and it's totally worked out for the libs perpetrating it. It's worked out for pretty much everyone. And I felt a real um, excitement and like a sense of solidarity when the opposition to COVID was primarily about the masks um, because I worked through the whole thing in a hospitality job and I had to, you know, from one day to the next, uh, wear the mask all day, every day and deal with, um, deranged residents who were like tattling on people, not wearing the mask and basically wanted me to like attack and condemn anyone not doing it. Um, it caused all of this crazy conflict. And then... I became worried when 
Um, the opposition to COVID restrictions became entirely about the technicality of the vaccine. Um, mm -hmm. I, I thought yeah. that that would uh, go down a path that would allow for the masks, which are the single most offensive alteration of uh, Western society that this has caused. Um, just expecting employees on a you know an underclass of permanently masked employees through corporate enforcement to continue existing as um, a rule of decorum and then the the anti-vax stuff i obviously understand uh, people's opposition to these vaccines but it has kind of dovetailed in the direction that i predicted which is that uh, the anti-vax stuff has become kind of libtarded, um, <laughs> and it's it's overlapping with seed oils and all of this like kind of uh, white woman holistic uh, right wing bodybuilder whatever. Um, I just don't. I think that I have always thought the masks are a far bigger problem than the vaccines. Yeah, I'm very much of the same mind, and uh, I, you know, I've always been like moderately anti-vax, more or less. Like, you know, it's not good. Like, I, you know, I think it's gross, and uh, it, you know, it's also like quite creepy in its own way. But like, really, like, I, I think that I am like the most virulent anti-masker that I know, um, and mm -hmm. the reason for that is like it's such an unprecedented like aesthetic transformation on like the appearance of everyday life. And it is like you there, I really can see no argument that the mask is for example, more in or more or less intrusive than say like compulsory hijab for women in, uh, in the Islamic world, which is something that liberals like pretend to care about. Like, you know, they genuinely like, uh, speak out against like, Oh, the poor women, like they're oppressed, uh, in the Islamic Republic of Iran because they have to wear the hijab. And, I agree with them. Like, actually, like, you know, I think that it's the mask has helped me to realize, like, that's a really creepy thing to do. Like, and, you know, it's no more, uh, you know, or it's no less uh, kind of onerous to expect people to, like, cover their face. You know, the only major difference is, like, uh, first of all, the universality of it, and also um, the kind of legitimizing, like, ideology behind it. But, you know, both, like, you could argue that both are, like, very effective at achieving their stated goals like compulsory hijab has like a 100 percent success rate of enforcing of uh traditional like islamic uh notions of modesty on those who wear it and likewise like you know well arguably the mask does you know reduce reduce uh disease transmission around the edges but there's no absolutely like no like kind of like meta conversation about like well, what measures are precisely worth it? Like, how much can you intrude on the appearance of everyday life before it's no longer worth it? And just like the total inability of uh, liberals to engage with that question at all, um, or to acknowledge that there is a point after which this is no longer worth it, that this is like a non-negotiable quality of life issue, that I don't want to live in a world that's like permanently masked like East Asia. like. I would fight in a war to oppose that. Like that's an insane, yeah, like absolutely. that's an insane, like development. Like, um, well, the mask is a hijab for men. It's specifically mm -hmm. intended to uh, demoralize men and uh, masculinity and and any kind of potentiality of masculine action or 
resistance because women have a historical precedent of covering their faces. It's less jarring. They also seem all told less bothered by it in general. Um, But men look ridiculous. Uh, They look like Martians with their little uh, stupid piece of fabric over their face. And it also makes people treat you worse as a man. As soon as I took the mask off, people started treating me with respect while they treated me like a, you know, buzzing little effete idiot while I had it on because it's simply, you can't respect a man that wears them. Um, it's totally, totally specifically intended to demoralize men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. I, I, I like I've spent like basically this whole time in New York City, which is like ground zero for masking. I mean, it's probably I imagine like California is much worse. Um, I haven't been there, but ba- just based on what friends tell me, like um, California or maybe like parts of Boston, say, are probably like a little bit more absolutist than New York. The thing is, like New York, like you have a large population of uh, ethnic minorities who. Uh, many of whom are very enthusiastic about wearing it, but those who aren't are very brazen about it. And so that kind of like uh, changes the culture around it. And it's, as you said on one of your episodes, it's genuinely um, requires balls to go against something like that. Nothing has ever occurred like that in my life where I knew Uh, before this, where I knew something to be deeply, deeply wrong going on on a large scale in society. And I just could not morally uh, play along with it or resist anymore. I mean, not resist or support it anymore. Um, And uh, like, I don't like the feeling of being looked at and like opening myself up to uh, conflict and scolding and, you know, the potential of like crazed, uh, mask libs, like filming me at target and publishing out on the internet. And I only had one, um, one, uh, mask shaming incident. Uh, Austin has by and large been good to live in during COVID. People haven't been too crazy. Basically the only holdouts of mask enforcement are, uh, the so-called mom and pop local businesses with their keep Austin weird logos and LGBT, uh, pride flags in the windows, coffee shops, bookshops, stuff like that. And it was in, um, an LGBT pride flag coffee shop where, uh, a guy started hassling, uh, me and my boyfriend for the first time ever in a really like directly like the only time i've experienced like real homophobia (laughs) was was from an anti-mask lib i mean from a pro-mask lib um so it all makes sense the whole spider web of ideology there and he specifically like spat things out at us about like um privileged white people privileged (laughs) white people think they don't have to wear a mask um, so it, it, it was exactly as I mapped it out, like the resentment of uh, gay men as uh, non-compliant, uh, troublesome minorities right now in subservience to the, the uh, brown, feminine, uh, intersexed blob uh, that's taken over gay rights. It's all there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you you know they'll always say like, oh, people are being so selfish about it. Like, how can these anti-maskers be so selfish? And you know, say what you will about it, but 
like it's not selfish you're inviting like a lot of like negative attention and energy onto yourself by being like a public dissident in this way and especially in like an uh, you know a blue urban area um you know i i'm like not being selfish i'm a crazed ideological fanatic like I, you know i'm it's extremely principled you're making your life markedly less pleasant in order to uh defy the state on this thing well that, selfishness you know. since the beginning of time has been a, a sort of double speak word that uh communists use uh libs and the, the underlying sinister spidery communist forces use to uh illicit compliance um if you've ever read the fountainhead you would see how this has always worked uh where the idea of selfishness um specifically applied to uh white people only and usually men is used to um enforce uh propaganda and uh violating policies mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, this kind of touches upon one thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is just like that broader like feeling of alienation. Um, you know, I'm I remember it wasn't that long ago, but um, before the CCP virus psyop, like just um, feeling like very comfortable in the world, like feeling very comfortable. Even you know, I went to like a liberal university, whatever, but like I still felt very uh, at peace with. Um, my environment and i thought you know i can whatever like differences i may have with a stranger that i see like it, you know i could probably just overcome them with kindness and now like walking around like feeling this tension it's uh it's oh like... me too i like immediately before the ccp virus um 2019 i had finally kind of come to terms with the uh, transformation of cultural and political discourse um, and learned to uh, deal with Trump derangement syndrome uh, and all of the insane things that libs were doing. I, I'd learned to deal with it in the workplace by kind of simply nodding and not talking about politics. And like I was kind of at peace at that point. And then this new massive behemoth obstacle where the libtard uh, political spider uh, no longer just wants your job and your home and your friends and your livelihood and all of this. It becomes a physical object on your face where you can't breathe and you're forced to signify your adherence to libtard policy with a garment. Um, and it, it, it like deranged me. It, it drove me crazy. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah, those, uh, you know, those were some of the blackest months. I think it's um, particularly like the autumn, starting in like the autumn of 2020, after I stopped taking uh, unemployment with an extra $600 every week um, and, uh, you know, started working again. And then just like this grating feeling like winter is coming, um, you know, like literally like the winter is coming. And, you know, I, I really do uh, thrive in the summer. You know, I like the beach and uh, the sunbathing, whatever. Um, but also this in tandem with like, wow, everything is ugly. Like everything's becoming ugly in this like really creepy and sinister way. Um, and it's designed I, so that you cannot get away from it ever. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the, the enter, there's no mindless entertainment anymore. Like mm -hmm. entertainment has of course always been 
full of primarily liberal propaganda. Um, but there was a radical shift to um, totally depreciated and decreased quality and um, just the aesthetic layout of it when they started um, going going for the gold with the diversity Olympics and basically eliminating any image of a white person who isn't like uh, mutated or disabled <laughs> from or obese from commercials and from your little uh, streaming landscape to the point that now it's just the, this totally parallel artificial world where everyone in every commercial and TV show is this alien uh, mulatto race that no one has ever seen in real life uh, with red hair and freckles and whatnot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, 2020 was also a great year for me creatively, probably the best up to that point um, mm -hmm. because the, the show started catching on um, and uh, the, sort of oppression liberal oppression being enacted on everyone sort of fed it and there was at the beginning a kind of um creative flourishing in these scenes where there was like cross-pollination between people of different political stripes who had uh shared interest in art and um it was an exciting time before it really clamped down but also the month that i had covid was the happiest month of my life um, oh, really? Mine decided. was the worst. Like I, uh, I got it. Loved like, it. <laughs> I got Dr. it like Chicago a ice palace for on, me. A month of watching movies. Yeah, I got it on Christmas visiting my family. Like doing like the most normal thing in my like reckless life of like lip licking subway poles or whatever. Um, and uh, but you know, so I ended up in New York uh, just that week. I, uh, you know, I was staying in for New Year's, which was very depressing. And then, you know, my birthday, January the 3rd. Uh, so just like kind of like sitting there rotting in my seven by eight foot room. I didn't even leave my room really that much when my roommate was around because, uh, you know, I didn't want to give it to him. Um, and that was honestly like probably like the most harrowing week of my life. Um, and, you know, there were a couple of black pills after that as well, but, um, it, you know, it really helped. Uh, I found like, just like going to the beach in the winter, like even like swimming in the winter, like, uh, I, it, it was very cathartic. Invigorating. Um, yeah. yeah. For me, it was frosty Dr. Zhivago ice palace, uh, paradise. Uh, it felt pretty like doomful, like something very bad was on the horizon, but it was the first month that I uh, had totally off work where I could just sit and watch movies in the way that I did in middle school and high school without a care in the world, not even looking at my phone. So I was watching like uh, Dr. Shivago and Shoah and Heaven's Gate and all of this stuff uh, with the Christmas tree up and um, getting paid for it as well. And I only had like one super bad uh, physical day of, the virus with a fever. The rest of it was just kind of technicalities and waiting for some you know, doctor who didn't know what they were doing to tell me it was okay to go back to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, I think uh, my favorite era of, uh, of the coronavirus, other than like the early stages when, wait, like you said, like that was like really like the high watermark, I think in terms of like the, uh, you know, 
edgy like uh internet uh counterculture was like the spring of 2020 when uh when Kantbot and Steve Bannon went on Red Scare and there was like, you know, there was like a real feeling. People thought that this was going to be the end of wokeness. They thought that this was going to be like the end of like, uh, uh, you know, like identity politics, liberal religion. And, and it laid uh, the framework. I mean, it did certainly influence things long term. It's just it was zapped away as soon as... Um, racism was revealed to be the virus and then it yeah i think that it, <laughs> it probably like hastened and this like kind of like consolidation that we see now but my yeah. favorite part other than that was probably like a year later circa march of 2021 when the mandates started to be lifted and uh you know outdoor masking like because you know just like outdoor like walking down the sidewalk like you, you would be looked at like a pariah for not having the mask and i knew in my instincts i'm like there's no way you're going to spread it just like passing someone on the sidewalk like this is just like too egregious and they can't enforce this like what are they going to do on you um but people will like give you these disgusting looks uh at the time and um that was always uh I don't know. That was always very harrowing for me because, you know, at core, like I'm very sensitive, you know, I really want people to like me and I really uh, care, but I'm also like very stubborn about like this. Me is too. Absurd. I, I like, don't like getting in trouble. I've never liked getting in trouble. I have this weird uh, combination of like being this like inflammatory person who likes a certain amount of uh, theatrical negative attention, but I've also always just hated being in trouble. <laughs> like, yeah and it's like you know i always think of like a stranger like uh with no like no interaction with them my instinct is like well i you know would be friends with this person like i don't like to be in an executive position like making decisions about who i affiliate with like i genuinely would try to be welcoming to everyone and like not like uh you know gatekeep like my personal uh uh attachments or whatever um but, you know, and so it's just like uh, distressing to see people be hostile to you for what feels like basically an innate feature of who you are, like that you have right. these and, principles. And and, and COVID uh, did that, like made you uh, view other people as just in this totally paranoid way as potential tattletales and informants like every day at work it was totally like that after they took away masks and then brought them back and then for the last uh, like eight months i was working there i just broke the rule and didn't wear it but you started to view every single person coming up as just not um not anything but someone who could potentially get you in trouble through tattling and bureaucratic meddling mm -hmm. yeah and just definitely like hardened me a little bit like uh you know i'm probably like a little less sensitive to hostility from strangers after all that but you know it's it's still like uh it feels like a stake through the heart like um well yeah. and the way that it attacked uh the family specifically in a very de spiritually deliberate way like oh yeah um, like liberalism has always been about attacking the family unit in less direct ways but when uh, you know that first year when the holidays rolled around and all the blue checks and journalists who had been traveling the whole time like liberals never stopped their traveling rich people never stopped their traveling through the whole thing but for holidays they stepped in line 
and wrote all of those chilling demonic pieces about how going home and seeing your family for Christmas is actually a selfish act. It was just straight out of the fountainhead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, they spent 10 years pushing this whole meme that like, wow, like, you know, Bill O'Reilly, that fucking retard, he believes that there's a war on Christmas. Can you imagine how stupid you well, must be to believe that there's a war on Christmas? On Christmas? And like, they pushed that for so long. And then, you know, it, it, come 2020, the, the not line is like, you absolutely cannot celebrate Christmas with your family. The most like normal, inoffensive thing you can like imagine. Um, you're literally a murderer if you do this. And they never once had to own up for the fact that they brought like the war into Christmas on Christmas into being in like a very like stark and undeniable way. In the most like literal, like math equation kind of way. <laughs> I, the war on Christmas was one of the first red pills for me way back because I've always been a person who loved christmas and i just eternally exist at christmas time everything i like mm -hmm. is christmas related most magical time of the year but mm -hmm. with gen xers and people with like divorced parents um all the the many factors that contribute to someone becoming a libtard uh they all hate christmas um and they all had this you know really nasty attitude about it and then the in the 2010s it became a thing uh for uh hipsters to unduly love halloween as a kind of symbol of you know this inversion of christmas of this like kind of demonic death obsessed skeletal um also cutesy and twee in their own way inversion of of christmas which they thought represented the squareness and family values and all of this so i noticed that really early on yeah and then if they if they do like celebrate christmas it's always like the unlistenable sufjan stevens uh album of like extremely wimpy like christmas cover songs like that you know they'll never like unironically like enjoy deniability yeah like oh i like it because it's hipster not because it's christmas you know <laughs> um, yeah and, or, like yeah the, the, like the standards are so good like kind of oh like, yeah yeah or, or an ironic um an ironic fascination with the Mariah Carey song, which um, is re is really annoying. It yeah, I mean, it seems be, to like, me that the Mariah throaty. Carey song is like played straight, like it's meant to like be in the canon, like you know, well, it's it really works. like shooting for the stars, and like, but they hoist it up as like this anti-canonical like Christmas song made by uh, woman POC like in the '90s, and it's modern and it's not like hokey, but like the standards are phenomenal. Um, <laughs> like uh, I don't know, like. Uh, holly jolly christmas fucks um and you know all the sinatra bing crosby stuff like that goes so hard like um my favorites are amy grant's first christmas album from the early 80s oh my dad uh, loves amy kenny Grant. rogers and dolly parton's christmas album oh my dad used to love amy grant yeah there's a weird uh television special that goes with that album. That's very awkward and strange that I watched last year. <laughs> um, but I, lo I love everything Christmas, Christmas music, even if I kind of dislike it, like the Mariah Carey song, I still kind of love it. But the reactions that have, that you will notice with normies when you play Christmas music, it's unavoidable. Like at work, I would start playing Christmas music at the end of November and they would all uh, ask me with screwed up faces and this this uh, pitying tone, like I was being forced to listen to Christmas music. I was like, no, I just put it on. Um, one time I, I sent a Christmas card 
with a glittery nativity to my uh, previous workplace. And um, one of my coworkers like pitched a big fit about it before he realized it was sent by me. He was like, who is sending this Jesus stuff to us? Like, like normies are really, really nasty about Christmas. They don't even realize the deepness of the conditioning. That's so funny because it's like, uh, that's like the same like contempt that, uh, that was met by Christ himself. Like, um, you know, he like stirs like these very polarized reactions in people that on one hand, like he goes into Jerusalem and they lay down the laurels for him and say like, you're a, you know, blessed is he who comes and, um, and then, you know, the next week they're, uh, spitting on him and calling out to crucify him. And it's like, it's almost as though like the reaction to Christmas, uh, albeit without like the pathos of the passion, it, 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 as though like the incarnation itself is like something that's so, uh, disturbing to like the liberal imagination. Oh I don't yeah. Know, but... and, and you see the whole pipeline of Christmas negativity. Like it starts with the, the communists and the intellectuals and the, the academics over here, uh, their negativity about Christmas and what it symbolizes, you know, whiteness, colonialism, Christianity, whatever, their brew of words. And then they operating in the media disperse that negativity through um, escalatingly anti-Christmas media, like movies, you know, involving Sarah Silverman and Seth Rogen and whatnot. Um, they disperse that on the public. And then the normie over here who doesn't even think about politics and would never even know what I'm talking about here uh, kind of learns that Christmas is a signifier of squareness and lameness and that they should approach others with a kind of rote uh, received negativity about Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that um, I don't know if it's how intimately it is like tied to like this uh, visceral disdain for christ himself because you know in their mind like i don't think they're really thinking of it as like a christian thing except insofar as christian means is like a synecdoche for white and white is bad but like i don't think they're really thinking of the nativity when they rail against it this way but i wonder how much of the hostility is because of that uh that connection that it's like intimately involved with this very weird event which culminates in uh, a kind of like uh really like difficult and um unpleasant act of violence that you're meant to meditate on like the passion and then mm. um, that in their moral imagination like the idea of like dwelling on the unpleasant is kind of uh, uh taboo um you know they, they're like basically uh negative utilitarians like you know they think of having to minimize suffering as like their core moral value. And I think that they're sincere about that. It, uh, you know, I think that they genuinely do conceive of themselves as like eradicating suffering from the world, which I, it, but that's like a horrible idea. Like, um, Oh yes. Well, if, they, if normal people with married parents are allowed to enjoy Christmas, it will make, um, the Gen X, uh, children of divorce feel bad. So, you know, everybody has to be on the same level, uh, at spirit Halloween shop, uh, just adorning their house with skeletons and whatnot. And That's I get allowable. it. Like, yeah. like I'm a child of divorce. And so like, uh, holidays like that, they often are like the occasion for like intense negotiations about like your schedule. And, uh, you know, it, it often becomes like a hassle, uh, a kind of, uh, yeah. you know, and I mean, to, like, even with age, Christmas becomes a bitter thing. I'm finally at the age where, uh, you know, you feel this kind of resentment at um, 
trying to make this Christmas the same as the others. And it, it just reminds you of aging in this, in this really melancholy way. But also I think the intellectual roots of the war on Christmas are the, uh, calling it, uh, capitalist exploitation and commercialism, like in, uh, you know, I, I, I love it to death. It will always have a place in my heart, but the Charlie Brown Christmas special from the mid sixties, uh, really formulated the kind of neurotic hipster negativity about Christmas. And of course it has the, the Christian message at the end, but that really set the framework for everybody pretending that they're the protagonist in a little sitcom where they uniquely are depressed by Christmas and everyone else, the inf intellectual inferiors around them, uh, mm -hmm. love Christmas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, um, I guess it's just, um, you know, it holds up like it has merit because the, the cultural milieu that it's speaking to is one in which, like, I think someone could actually feel, like, uniquely alienated if they're not, like, uh, uh, if they don't feel rooted in some kind of, like, stable family structure and they don't feel, like, the, uh, the coziness that people associate with Christmas. Um, you like, know, calling I can imagine, holidays like, commercialism is, uh, like, um, kind of cheap and easy little intellectual signifier. Um, yeah, and it's, it, yeah, and it's like, I mean, I would probably say like it is, <laughs> is overly commercialized, but like, you know, you're not actually like willing to engage with that, like by, you know, spiritualizing it, then like, you know, what's the effect of your complaint? Like if you're reducing everything to the material, then um, it, it has very little weight to uh, critique commercialism as Like, such. you know how the last like um, 20, 30 years of Christmas movies all start with some sort of montage of like black friday shoppers trampling each other with an ironic like bing crosby song playing like jingle all the way was one of the first ones uh -huh. but that that awful krampus movie for hipsters um mm -hmm. that starts with a really phoned in kind of uh marvel at the commercialism of christmas kind of message mm -hmm. yeah i don't uh i don't know uh I can't really uh, think of any other examples of what you're speaking of, but like, yeah, it just well, seems very on the nose further. and hostile. Like recently, in the last year of Christmas media, they've reduced it to such a plain and like utilitarian and joyless state. Like they barely even use the um, non-religious Christmas songs. It will just be an image of a frizzy haired mulatta with a scarf and earmuffs and then like the H&M logo above her. And it just says something vague about holidays. It's just reduced to such a, like even, even the non-religious Christmas songs are like too much for the libs now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, which it kind of touches on what we were saying earlier about like, uh, this tension, like, uh, living with like, you know, a kind of like guardedness and like, uh, host if, if, uh, feeling like you might invite hostility based on who you are, but like, um, and you, you've spoken about this before, but I guess to go deeper, like on the kind of like liberal appetite for cruelty, like this desire to like exercise socially sanctioned cruelty, um, wherever the opportunity arises and, you know, I feel like it's also like exposed me to like this very like dark uh, impulse. Um, Spectral rape. 
<laughs> that was, yeah yeah uh, and that's like the only way that you can like emotionally describe like the feeling of it um yeah know, I, I i got made fun of like relentlessly when i started saying spec like uh calling uh cancel culture quote tweet spectacles uh spectral rape and saying that they were explicitly a sexual act which mm-hmm. i believe that they are they're a sexual they're the only like um, socially sanctioned sex act for transgenders and libs. Like the rest of human sexuality has been um, banned essentially. Like we, so much ink has been spilled by continental philosophers about like the fascist sexual apparatus and how like fascism and right wing views are all just like a, a, a stand in for like some like sexual Freudian neurosis that they have from their childhood. And honestly, like, notwithstanding like perverts like us like um i feel like the normal like you know kind of standard fair um like right-wing personality like the uh the fascist personality is like adorno would say like they are incredibly like straightforward in their sexual appetites and they're just like yeah "Yeah," like you know they have like normal human desires there's really not that much to unpack there and you know like uh the kind of archetype of uh edgy like dissident like uh homosexuals and perverts and sex pests like that's like pretty anomalous in the conservative mentality well straight people by and large have really uh conventional sexual tastes when left to their own devices most of the the kind of performatively adventurous stuff that they start parroting um and experimenting with uh, comes explicitly from media from television shows yeah and like, that's always like it seems to be me to be the domain of like late bloomers like people that were very repressed until like age uh 24 or something which is a good thing you know I, that's uh based and uh and uh trad cath pilled or whatever it may be but like the, you know it seems that they just kind of uh affect this as though like it makes them interesting and like conspicuously talking about sex all the time and like um you know talking openly about your sex toys which i think is like the corniest thing in the world um the idea that you would have a toy to have sex like a product that you just like bought and it's like in the sex toys should be illegal and in the current like lance twitter landscape i'm pretty like pro-sex uh libertine Mm -hmm. but sex Mm -hmm. toys have always grossed me out and any kind of like paraphernalia um yeah have, uh, that you know in my fascist state uh, we're not selling that yeah yeah it's just like so nerdy and kind of like off-putting and like it, it just feels like uh very try hard well you um, know that it's just not reflective of reality this is why uh, you can observe when people transition and start going through the the gender non-binary alphabet experimentation they become really flagrantly sexual publicly sexual um when the underlying reality is that they you know if they get genital surgery they're probably never going to have an orgasm ever again and also um most people by and large are not attracted to them so there has to be this performed element of i'm highly desirable everyone wants me and I'm so confident in my sexuality. And this is just like, you know, propaganda that they've absorbed from the internet, from different media. It's just what they think that they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, by and large, I think most people naturally have very quote unquote vanilla sexual tastes. And the rest of it is 
compensating for something. Mm-hmm. Um, if you let a really like fucked up life or were raped or something, then you know you're pr- you're probably pretty kinky, but. <laughs> <laughs> most most straight people just like the way that something like well, I think uh, that people are like uh, uh, kind of like men especially like they are their brains are like damaged by porn in a very real way and like I think what that you know I know enough anecdotal uh, you know friends or whatever that it basically communicated on one hand it does make you like very frigid and kind of uh, um, what's the word uh, prudish in that like but it's because like the bar in terms of like uh, what it takes to arouse you is like so elevated to this like abstract pornographic ideal that, um, you know, you kind of uh, it, it just like polarizes like that entire uh, sex drive and it forces it e- into either like entropy and just like kind of like uh not like it totally like uh, masturbatory sexuality on one hand or like just like ever more like dangerous and deranged kind of uh, extremes to like get like that uh, pornographic high that you would get otherwise. Right. And like girls only in their early twenties only get into this kind of uh, deranged stuff as a sort of tough counterculture signifier that they're like a, a hardened uh, kind of prostitute type tough girl, which, mm-hmm. you know, after you, grow past a certain age they don't want to be seen as that at all once they're once they realize that um looking like a whore uh will not help them actually find a worthwhile mate uh they abandon all of that but the sexual the dominant sexual neuroses of the 2010s was uh the worship of daddy figures and um like sec hairiness and male secondary sexual characteristics so at this time where liberal neutering of male sexuality and the total banning of like patriarchs or traditional male power is taking place, um, Lana Del Rey, uh, preeminent among them, comes forward and all of her music is about forbidden desires for fathers for strong violent uh take charge uh masculine men Uh um and also the fashions which you know in the like depraved 2000s were all about like shaved body hair and like twinks and Mm -hmm. um looking younger the fashions became more about uh looking masculine as drag so men suddenly have these big beards and uh no one manscapes anymore and dad bod becomes a thing i mean i think that the dad thing is like very intuitive like i think that it's i mean it's eternal is Especially very authentic like... to the <laughs> female imagination yeah and to like the gay male imagination i'm sure um you know the the idea um i mean I mean, I think every uh, 20-year-old straight man, uh, unless he's like the president of his fraternity, kind of has a chip on his shoulder because he's like uh, going through the world and he notices like all of his peers, like all of the 20-year-old women, uh, you know, you see someone from college and they're like, oh, me and my 35-year-old boyfriend and... um, you know, and then you're like, well, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> there's perfectly eligible men your age. And that's just kind of like a trial that you have to go through as like a straight right. man. And- you have to like suffer through that. That's uh, um, but 
you know, the instinct behind it, like, uh, is very, uh, intuitive. And I think, uh, probably like more honest than like this, uh, worship of, um, the like hairless, uh, you know, beautiful, like jacked twink archetype, which is like, um, more, I think of an aesthetic affectation than like an actual like lifestyle preference or like actually something that women would react to in the real world. It's weird. Like you're so young. You're only what? 23, 24 now, but yeah, (laughs) 24. Um, but in the two thousands, the, uh, terror of male body hair was such that like when I was 15, 16 and like sitting at lunch with like female friends, girls would shriek if you mentioned men having chest hair uh like that's the chest hair pubes anything like oh, that's, that's so funny like i uh one of my friends about a month ago like i was like wearing a tank top and he's just like why don't you shave your armpit hair like are you trying to be like one of those edgy girls that you know uh it doesn't shave her armpit hair as a political statement and i'm like what no it's literally never occurred to me like i've never known of the concept of like a straight man like shaving his armpit hair without being no like that's some, very like... like fetish kind of thing like if you want to do <laughs> do that as some very specific kind of like body fetish thing that's one thing but for just a regular person a regular man like they're like shaving and depilating your body hair is just uh, annoying and painful like <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i i guess like um you know uh more broadly on like the the sexuality question i guess my interpretation of events and like the narrative of how we got to this space is like that this is basically like the force of entropy on uh human sexual and romantic relations that like you know there is like this uh liberatory movement uh the 60s and 70s counterculture which um which is heralded uh, by the arrival of technologies that actually make it possible and anything but a farce um you know the birth control pill and um uh, you know, the mass popularization of cars, etc. Like, um, but that because this is libertine, because it like relies on a pre-existing vocabulary of um, normative ideals in order to subvert them, that it's inherently unsustainable. That when you do subversive art this way, you're consuming something. There's like this commodity out there, an intangible commodity that is like, that people recognize the concept of a gender role, that people recognize like, this is what a man is supposed to be and a woman is supposed to be. And so that's why, you know, they'll always say like, you know, if you if you say anything about gender goblins being unattractive, they'll be like, oh, well, what about David Bowie? No woman was ever attracted to David Bowie, I'm sure. And it's like, but like the entire point is like, it was vital and like, uh, appealing and cool because like it relied on like a, a vocabulary of gender that actually was recognized by well, consensus. And David Bowie was a swaggering like genius masculine musician like adorning himself with you know slight elements of drag like <laughs> today's gender goblinism there's no product or art or even personality that people are selling. It's yeah, about... it's almost like that kind of androgyny is like, uh, you know, it, it's an extension of like the masculine instinct to like uh, be transgressive. Well, ro- and that's rock and, and like, roll. Announce like the, yourself, like, you know. The, the meaning of rock and roll is like this performance of swaggering male energy, Dionysian energy, free from all the uh, 
bonds of society of square society and conformity and all of this um through this loud swaggering music um and that's a concept that younger people probably don't even understand because rock music hasn't existed for so long like it's rock music's time in the sun was relatively short it was like you know three four decades really but you don't kind of understand what that meant to people at that particular time and that particular society unless someone tells you like what led zeppelin meant to someone like my dad in east texas and like a baptist household in 1970 you know mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you know, gay culture is always like kind of like relied on like camp pre- presentations of like traditional masculinity, like the village people, like they're they're just like these like working class men who uh, are like they're dressing up in drag as working class men, and like that's uh, you know that's kind of how they draw upon this vocabulary and like they subvert it by being like flaming homosexuals, but. That... And, and all that the and the makeup and the like androgynous trappings of rock music are all about uh how much femininity you can pile onto yourself and still come off swaggering and masculine. It's not about the femininity itself, it's a flex. It's... I mean there's also like the flip side of it is like uh women wearing pants and like Catherine Hepburn and uh uh well Marlena Dietrich as well like uh you know the, but I, I but those you know yeah it's it's the flip side where you see how much uh, masculinity and masculine signifiers you can pile on to a, a female body and they still seem uh, sexual and feminine and attractive like you know m- the vast majority of women will not look good with a pixie cut you <laughs> have to be like Audrey Hepburn or Mia Farrow. You know, like and have it's the to, fact have you a... still have this like consciousness that like a transgression has occurred. Yeah, like, no one would be scanned. Like it, it's not cool when women wear pants now because like nobody's scandalized by it because like mm. there's no like uh, existing like kind of uh, like the vocabulary has been like pretty much completely obliterated in a very real sense. I think everyone is gender non-binary in modernity except for the Amish and like the Hasids and also honestly like autogynophiles. I think that's like the last like ditch effort to like kind of uh, tap into this, uh, um, this vocabulary of like what it means to be gendered by becoming like this characteristic performance of, uh, of a sex that you're not born as like in, in a very real sense, I think that they actually are like the last, uh, the last people standing who have gender and, you know, but maybe like, uh, the, the like bronze age pervert subculture as well, which are basically like, it's becoming an autogynophile, but for the gender you were, were born as, you know, right. It's, it's drag, uh, for your own gender, but <laughs> you can just observe culture from observe like men's culture, uh, from before, uh, homosexuality became totally socially sanctioned, officially sanctioned, and gay marriage was legalized. Every single thing, every single like media property that you watch is more erotic and obsessed with the male form and more quote unquote gay. Like every kind of like Revenge of the Nerds um, type movie, Porkies, whatever, um, filled with male nudity. Like Hollywood movies had this this uh totally thoughtless kind of 
um, adoration of the male form uh, that was way more prevalent before everything became gay and there this like kind of severe division between gayness and straightness occurred in the late uh, 2000s, early 2010s. So that's how you have during, you know, the most like Republican conservative period in recent American history, the 80s, everyone in culture, in pop culture was like in drag and no one even thought anything of it because it was just rock music. It was just excess. Mm -hmm. But I guess uh, more broadly, like my, uh, my reading of like the kind of decay into like uh, sexless zoomerism, which is like a very real phenomenon. Like, you know, so many of my peers uh, are very like uh, um, frigid and kind of um, introverted, shut in, like whatever, like, they, you know, these are all like uh, part of the same dysfunction. This uh, Well, being sex very, negative like, is now like a New York zoomer scene thing right yeah but honestly <laughs> I like I, I it's just like an affectation i feel like you know i mean but, except like i i honestly like am probably like genuinely sex negative in a very real sense in that i believe that sex has like a very like uh destructive power and like uh you know i think that god probably would not have um had humans reproduce sexually if he if he hadn't if not for the fall he had right, foreseen totally. the fall the fall of adam and so he knew that this was going to be like the corrupt state that we would end up in and so he cr created like sexual reproduction kind of uh uh knowing that but like it's you know i don't think in like a prelapsarian state like uh i mean there was sex in the prelapsarian state but like it's not really like uh the ideal vision and i think that's why you know there's kind of uh emancipation from then the kingdom of heaven and like i really totally. do believe what? in like the destructive power of sex i am like pretty like unironically catholic in that you know i think that it's uh bad to like have premarital sex in general like uh on an individual moral level but like um you know it, it i what i view like the sexless zoomer phenomenon as like and this is like distinct from like the kind of like edgelord like uh honor levy like you know saving yourself for marriage affectation like the, the, the sexless zoomer being like the kind of uh like frigid like feminist only fans girl that like doesn't you know that's like deeply afraid of men and won't talk to them is that this is like the um the inevitable result of libertinism in some sense but libertinism is cool because it's unsustainable because by making like um broad like promethean attacks against like uh the law and like the idea of authority itself um you know nature abhors a vacuum like you can't have a society or even like an individual who functions according to that and your your mind is going to be colonized by uh a deeper and like more unscrupulous puritanism inevitably right and it will come out in different ways like like me me too is um a sort of atheistic liberal uh, sexual puritanism reacting against the excesses of the 2000s and you know basically all of sexual liberation it, it will come out that way it will come out with the the current uh, trad anti-sex kind of right-wing fervor um i'm talking about several different things when i'm making fun of the like um new york scene anti-sex stuff I'm talking about like Red Scare trickle down, 
where uh-huh. uh, it's a specific type of like 22 year old uh, girl or gay uh, that uh, believes in nothing and stands for nothing, but they've learned these kind of uh, dilute uh, signifiers and terms that have trickled down to them specifically from Red Scare. Like there was one caller on there on their last episode that was like an obnoxious kind of young gay who was sharing uh grinder screenshots for attention and he referred to himself as i'm in an anti-sex phase right now and i see this everywhere with young gays where they're all um just these nasty little prudes but with this like moral superiority um where they because it's safe now to condemn horny uh promiscuous gays it's totally sanctioned by liberal society uh, but you can feel a little edgy, a little reactionary doing it because your your uh, dumb gay friends have not caught up yet. But then the image of like um, total gender neutral uh, Zoomer sexlessness to me is the Ella Imhoff couple uh, <laughs> where uh, everybody is just like one of the the Hermie the Christmas elf from the the claymation Rudolph Um where you just wear these and David Hogg too, where you're just wearing these like uh macrame, like knit uh, <laughs> unitard bodysuits and your, your boyfriend, a girlfriend, usually you're just a heterosexual, but they look exactly like you. They're wearing the big nerd Jeffrey Dahmer nerd glasses. Um, there's sex happening somewhere behind the scenes, but there's no public presentation of it or any kind of, uh, gender disparity between the two of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I guess I'm uh, pretty disillusioned at this point with like the aesthetics of Catholicism in particular, but like, yeah, like this kind of like affectation. I mean, the principle behind it is really something that I don't really give myself much leverage to counter signal because, you know, because I really like unironically believe in is something that you would probably call like sex negative but like um you know but like aesthetically like uh instinctively like my kind of uh, aesthetic consciousness is very like rooted in like the 1970s i feel like like that's that feels like home to me in a way that feels like uh you know the movies from the 70s are like something that i just like the look of them i think that the way that people think then where um it's very intuitive to me i like the toughness of people in the 70s yeah well (laughs) because they genuinely didn't were lost and didn't know where they were it was this middle period between the you know experiencing the repercussions of uh sexual liberation and civil rights in the late 60s and then everyone was in just this barren lost uh, period that's reflected in the negativity of all of the movies and all of the media um, and uh, but like teenagers were just tough girls were tough I like I like 70s feminists I like yeah w- women in particular from the period oh, I watched of, like, a movie uh, two days ago have you seen uh, one sings the other doesn't no by Agnes Varda. I thought you were gonna that, say girlfriends no no that was uh it was playing at a uh, Metrograph uh, it, it, uh a couple days ago I was pretty ambivalent about it but like aesthetically like um you know that it was I I uh I don't know I invited a female friend to this movie I didn't realize it was gonna be like a feminist musical about abortion and child rearing um but it was uh <laughs> it, it, it just like 
you know, even if I'm ambivalent about the content of the movie, like it's just, it looks good. Like that just like looks like home, you know? And um, also I would say like, you know, my uh, fascination with this decade, which I want to explore in season two of this podcast more so, but um, I think it, it's a very different perspective uh, internationally. And like the, um, you know, I guess like to what extent like I have like the Iranian expat background and like the, I think the Iranian imagination of the seventies is uh, very different from the way that it's perceived in the United States and Europe in that it's, you know, the last hurrah of the Iranian monarchy. It's like this like uh, swinging disco period where uh, everyone was smuggling cocaine in briefcases and uh, the women mm. walked around without their hijab and, um, you know, the, the, there's a feeling of loss to it, that it's like the days of wine and roses. Like, um, and so I would say that that probably colors my perception uh, subconsciously. You know, maybe there's like some ancestral memory of it, but um, th that, um, you know, I tend to think about it in those terms as well, even though there's like this uh, pop culture narrative in the U.S. about, um, you know, just like cultural stagnation and discontent I I mean, so much of my reaction against the 2010s and all that's come after has been due to my great love of women and how they fell off in the last decade and just en masse became quite awful and became mm -hmm. operatives of the most childish and stupid and immature and totalitarian kind of propaganda which is kind of inevitable if you understand female nature, but I really like and respect uh, 70s tough feminist stuff. I like Jermaine Greer. I like um, that moment in the late 70s in cinema where everyone was wearing like, the women were all wearing like these tweed jackets and, uh, you know, you had the kind of like Mark and Mindy hair clips and they were all very like tough smoking. Uh, like you see Diane Keaton in uh, Woody Allen's interiors, that kind of character, um, Melanie Mayron in Girlfriends. Um, and that kind of female toughness uh, lasted through the, the 2000s because the original pre-political iteration of hipsters, like girls were fun and they were funny and they were like very casually sexual and they they hadn't learned this cynical process of self-victimization for attention it's just it's impossible for people who weren't there to understand women used to just be different and they yeah, had and more fun like i'm you know i <laughs> despite like uh whatever my religious principles may be like i genuinely just like enjoy the company of like uh libertine women and you know that to the extent that that still exists today like they're listening to you like <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's rare to find a genuine libertine woman usually they're like pretty fucked up and they're kind of like sad hence the you know the lyrical content of you know, every oh, pop r&b blues song since the beginning of time uh <laughs> is what happens to genuine libertine women but um well i know one uh who uh has been a big fan of the perfume nationalist uh, uh, almost as long as i have like, i love a genuine a woman with a genuine like male sex drive it's rare uh, because most of the I, like 
<laughs> uh, as we said, most of the bluster that women do about sexuality is like uh, given to them from media, and it's inauthentic. And most of them like like don't like sex all that much, or like it in a very like standard utilitarian way. But when you meet a girl with a genuine uh, sex drive of a man, it's it's great fun. They're like extremely charming. Like uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, when they just want dick for the sake of it, just because they want. I mean, they I think design, in many they have ways, the gay gaze, you know, more than they let on. Like, I think in many t- cases, it is still like a cry for help, but it's like just like so uh, pleasant and like self aware and like, um, <laughs> you know, it's it, like that's like p- women who are genuinely like a joy to be around. Like, they're funny and uh, outspoken and like literally like all of the things that like feminists aspire to, but like most of them wouldn't touch feminism with a ten foot pole. I mean, even like uh, it, like the Red Scare girls are like that. I don't really know them personally uh uh aside from like a few chance encounters with dasha but like you know i hardly you know them better than i do but like uh they um are just like so uh you know they're so well liked and glamorous and influential because like they're just like uh fun and charming and like not like uh and and real and and (laughs) feminine and like every man uh, every man and every woman, when they're faced with it, realizes the blistering, white-hot power of conventional femininity and conventional tools of seduction when they see it, because it so rarely happens now, because women act in such a defensive and, like, de-sexed and, like, hostile and kind of, like, bureaucratic manner, by and large. But, like, when a woman, like puts her hand on my arm, you know, or like flirts with me, like, or feeds me or, you know, anything that all women used to know what to do <laughs> to like, <laughs> manipulate a man. Uh, it's so hot. Everybody mm-hmm. knows this. And we've just forgotten all of the tools because of this endless like subversion of every uh, common sense principle or stereotype or whatever, you know? Yeah, and like I'm a like deep like congenital simp. Like that's like my hamartia, like uh, is simping. Um, I'm honestly like very easily impressed by women, and I'm like someone like okay. So by way of comparison, like uh, my old roommate like is probably like a much more like uh, straightforwardly masculine presence than I am in like a very conventional sense. And I found out like uh, after a year of living with him that he genuinely like cannot stand like listening to a woman or having a conversation with her like he just like uh you know as soon as like she starts talking like he just makes his face like he tasted something sour and he doesn't want any part of it he has his eye on the prize whatever um but uh you know i genuinely like like them (laughs) what's that you yeah, no, like I genuinely them. enjoy the company of women. Like, I think I'm really sure. interested in what they have to say, even though I feel like they don't have, like, a stable concept of truth, and they're very frustrating. Like, um, <laughs> but... No, I, I, I subscribe to the, like, old kind of Victorian idea of homosexuality, where you just have a woman's brain and a man's body. Uh, you know, in my case, a man's sex drive thrown in there as well. Um, <clears throat> but, like, I, I do feel like, I've always understood and been understood by women more my whole life and uh, straight men, men in general have always been a kind of exotic other that became desirable to me upon puberty. But I've always Mm. been like submerged in the woman's world. I mean, my whole like podcast universe is like 
all about my mother. <laughs> it's all about like imitating my mother and, you know, um, and this kind of like sadness about the decline of women in my life. But, you know, they, they, uh, they're coming back though. You're like, you're rehabilitating the gender. You know, I'm not saying that to flatter you. Like, I just feel like, <laughs> like, you. I mean, Red Scare is like the primary protagonist of this and like, yeah. uh, you know, living in New York and like, uh, it, it just like uh it, dabbling in that scene or whatever like thank god for red scare convincing a generation of women that being fascist is really hot like um you oh, know that makes my life important. a lot more pleasant uh you know i honestly like it, it, it's it saves me a lot of trouble uh i'm very grateful for that but like on a sec you know uh on a smaller scale like the, the perfume nationalist is not only like uh uh you know creating art but like it's actually like memes uh women into like being pleasant to be around again (laughs) and uh you know and like even like people that don't know like i uh i actually went on a date with a girl like uh about a year ago who knew the show um she said something on hinge about liking perfume and i said and i said oh i like yadigan and she spotted me right away. That's a red flag. That's a dog whistle. Yeah, yeah, no. And she knew it, and she thought it was cool. Um, mm-hmm. But Ain't nobody uh, wearing that shit that didn't come to it from me. Apparently, it. Uh, yeah, it, apparently it's in. Um, what's it called? Uh, the new Mike Ma book, Gothic Violence. Yeah, that's uh, from the TPN. He was supposed to come on at one time during the Jugs era. Oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Man, that's a. Uh, I had no idea, but that's cool. Yeah, no, he's um, not just mentioning Yadigan, you know. Well, I figured it was at least like uh, <laughs> two or three degrees downstream, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, that that's definitely um, pretty much direct. Yeah, even if like you know, women here like they don't listen to the show. Like, I feel like it still like kind of rubs off by uh, osmosis or like by two or three degrees, like uh, you know, like libtards like posting Paglia now because it's like, right. Like like they're really observant and they can tell like when like people are, um, (laughs) when they're on the right side of history, when you have the mandate of heaven, like, you know, it it just like shines and like women are very good at imitating that. And that's okay. Like that's their job. Like, uh, like Moldbug said, like, you know, a woman's job is to judge. I think my favorite listeners of the show that, I am in touch with are in fact not the many the predominant like straight men but I really like just like chill older women who just remember when shit was cool (laughs) and like this and a totally like TPN and a totally kind of like removed from Twitter sort of manner um and they're just like I like all the the topics he talks about like that's my ideal (laughs) listener there like and uh-huh. um, I've always gotten along with older women really well because of my interests. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear it's rubbing off in a positive way. You can also, of course, um, through the kind of meme pipeline, you see the weird way that reactions form against the stuff that you put out there. So with, with my like, uh, haters it's really funny because they're battling this very niche and very specific combination of like perfume soap operas Camille Paglia um, as if it's this like massive mainstream media presence 
<laughs> like you know, they, they always whenever they come after me, they they always have to come after Polya first. Like I know you all have been uh, hypnotized by the cult of Camille Polya, and I'm here to dispel that. Me, the former Bernie voter, uh, who failed no, me too. Podcasting. Like yeah. I, I've gotten this too, and like I don't even like. <laughs> I'm not even like I don't have clout like and yet like I still get this shit like there was there's uh one uh guy here who hangs out with like the e-catholics um and he like did like an angry post a few months ago I saw this where he's just like I fucking hate this poetry scene in New York of like these people that are just like oh I, I'm a fascist but I'm also uh you know I'm also like a poet and but we, we really want to kill gay people and I know that this is like about me and like the mold bug poetry uh party um and I'm like dude this is like literally like a scene consisting of 10 people that's living rent free inside of your head like there the, there's literally like 10 people that fit the description you're talking about oh my god like we have like probably like about like uh you know three thousand followers between the 10 of us and uh you know probably like uh 60 are gay on a on a good day um and they like notice it they notice it's strange they notice that they're not a part of it and that reminds them of their own personal uh you know potential creative failures um, and it's like and my so... worst haters, of course, are gay, are, are you know, gay, gay people who uh, gay people all think that they deserve the spotlight. And um, this is something that's discussed very well at length on Thought Topics podcast is the psychology of the jealous homosexual, how they don't want to <laughs> see any other homosexual succeed at anything because they should be the only homosexual who ever existed. The star. So they form the worst haters. But this was all built into the show from the start. The idea that any kind of like reaction to it, any kind of anger about it would look patently ridiculous. Um, and to anyone outside of this scene and outside of and not familiar with these various tropes and how they're associated with me and TPN, they just see this as total nonsense and don't understand what any of it is. But you get these like jilted little like Bernie voter haters that are going off. You know, they make it their sole mission to do like four screenshot cancel collages all day of Camille Paglia and of me and like against the idea of perfume and uh, soap operas and like, you know, I will be the one who proves that he is actually hollow and has not inspired anyone to enjoy art. And he's not right about anything like you as you get and further you know along else? in this little track, you, these, you see more and more of these people attempt this path where they're like, I will the, be the one who prevents people from seeing anything of value in what he and does. They're so hell-bent on saying, like, none of this is cool. They're so yeah, hell-bent on, like, insisting, like, this is lame. Like, uh, you know, when the pictures from Angel Fest came out, like, the, all the Antifas were like you know oh look at this fucking lame party this i bet it smelled horrible in there like uh and like it's just like what have you never been to like a party with like like hipsters before like this is literally like what it looks like in like they just like can't they just have to like you know the the lady doth protest too much like they have they to have insist to about... they have to insist that this is uncool and it's like no like you know that you're wrong you know that there's like and there's like this like outpouring so of libidinal energy when you see like Kyle Brown saying the n-word like it's cool and vital and it's like um. yeah, and everyone can tell and everyone has that kind of 
uh, Ayn Rand, the, all these libs have that Ayn Rand villain Ellsworth Tui kind of instinct to recognize power when they see it and recognize uh, change when they see it. And they resent it because they don't have the balls to be a part of it. And it's mm-hmm. too late by the time it gets to them. Uh, they didn't have the balls to try because they had convinced themselves, uh, usually through social social pressure and other forms of cowardice, um, that they were too good to try anything. And the, the safe route was the smartest route. And then when it blows up and becomes something with undeniable power in a barren, heavily censored cultural landscape, they have to cope and seethe and... Uh, make up little math equations about how actually they were the cool ones. And they never succeed because it's clear who has the mandate of God. Like, you don't have to look far, you know? (laughs) It's it's just clear if you're telling the truth. It's all about telling the truth and treating people well. Yeah, and these awful, like, uh, uh, like libs from Kiwi Farms, too, like from uh, r slash left cow or whatever, like, you know, they are just, like, genuinely, like, exercising, like, some of the creepiest, like, psychological impulses you can imagine. I mean, like, it's just the paparazzi. They have, like, pure malice. Yeah. Like, they, no, but it's more than that because, like, the paparazzi, like, I mean, they want to get they want to get a shot. Like, they want to get, like, a photograph. If it's scandalous, like, all the better. But, like, they're trying to uh, uh, tell a story. Like, that's more innocent in some sense, even though it's also very exploitative. Then, like, these people who, like, it's that, like, liberal trait that I was alluding to earlier, that they want to exercise cruelty on uh in a socially sanctioned way and they want to do it like with total anonymity so that they'll never be accountable that's like the like primary i'm totally uh, against anonymity and this has been the most controversial thing of my entire you know three years doing this is that people can't stand it especially in the old days because because of bap it was like number one rule that you must be anonymous but that actually serves as you know gay diva vanity and i've been proven right about this um that your words simply have more power if you are not anonymous and that anonymity, while it is used by a small fraction of people for the right reason, just because they Mm -hmm. simply want to protect their families and don't want their online life um, interacting and uh, having repercussions on their real life. Um, the vast majority of people simply let anonymity be this kind of demonic representation of their id where every every negative impulse and nasty impulse they've ever antisocial impulse they've ever had comes out through this anonymous fucking cartoon persona where they don't pay for anything they do, and they none of these people these are all like meek little shivering little nerdy guys and girls who would never dare to say any of this stuff to your face but the mere fact of not having the courage of your convictions to associate your identity with what you say that turns you into causes a personality schism like you see in alfred hitchcock's psycho um and i have said that since the beginning and everyone (laughs) everyone has hated it and it is 100 percent true yeah and i will um, like i've never really had like the impulse to be anonymous like i can't help it like i genuinely like uh you know i want to put my name out there like maybe it's you, you could even say it's narcissistic like i would own that honestly like but whatever but like that's not something that occurs to me naturally it's just like um and 
what I've realized is like everyone wants to occupy this position where they're purely critical, where they um, uh, can criticize without ever being subjected to scrutiny. If you remember, there was that viral video of Jon Stewart going on Crossfire on CNN and like roasting Tucker Carlson and like some like libtard that's just, you know, faded from history, gone with the wind. Like, um, but he's going on this TV show criticizing them for being like too soft and entertainment driven and and when they turn around and say, like, well, you're much more so, like, who are you to criticize us? He says, well, the difference is I do a comedy show and so I'm exempt from criticism. And it's like, you know, more broadly, like, that's the position that everyone wants to take. That's everyone wants to be the guy Comedy that... is a poison. The whole industry of comedy and comedians is a poison and I hate all of it because <laughs> the only t tool that that is used for, okay, the only thing that uh, comedy does is people are allowed to uh, kind of say in the Tim Dillon manner, uh, like uh, say some like uh, right wing controversial uh, truths that go against the liberal orthodoxy, but then they can run for cover and say, I'm just a comedian. I don't mean anything, which, you know, that's that's a system like, to be it, like, like an edgelord like there have people. to be stakes like you can't just like be merely like be provocative and that's what, like and, and, it has to have like truth to it and like actual transgression like you can't you know it, it's not really like effectual if you're you know just like uh saying edgy things but you're like oh but at the end of the day like i don't actually believe any of this like no i mean like the truth is like you know, I exaggerate like, uh, you know, certain like radical uh, dispositions I may have, like for the sake of putting everything up front, like I want everything to be on the surface. Nobody can accuse me of being a crypto racist. Like I'll, I'll frame everything in like the most like harsh and like uh, kind of um, well, that's the only way aggressive the power away. The, the yeah. most aggressive terms possible, because I want to be brutally honest. I want to say like, look, no, like, you know, I will not be called a, a secret fascist. Like I'll do a three hour episode of this podcast where I talk to an actual fascist and like basically agree with him on everything, but don't ever say that I am like deceiving you about what I believe because I'm actually like presenting it as much more radical than it is. But at the, at the same time, like it's not just merely like, you know, saying random stuff that doesn't matter. Like at the end of the day, I probably do have views on race that are like way more radical than would be accepted in the public forum. No, why and, do you think I named the podcast, the perfume nationalist and made the, icon a picture of myself in a death in june shirt i did the opposite tact of of what most people did at the time which is you know uh kind of masquerade as a bernie sanders socialist and then uh reveal your problematic uh conservative politics uh mm -hmm. as kind of a joke later on i front loaded the show with the problematic material and the name which worked out in my favor because it makes people mad just hearing about it, which I think there uh -huh. has to, for a podcast <laughs> to be successful, there, there has to be some element, uh, in the title, the, the host, whatever, some element that without any explanation gets a big, uh, polarized emotional reaction from people. Oh, and that's but something I took after. Like I, isn't I, real. What's a fascist? None of this is real. Nazis uh -huh. aren't yeah, real. Yeah, well, I use the word fascist a lot, but, like, when I say fascist, I mean, like, about, like, one, know, of, ten, like, one of ten the, different things. The only way to about half the, of them are good and half of them are, like, disgusting. And, like, 
I, you know, I'm very ambiguous about like, uh, you know, I like all of the, like, I, I mean, I'm not like a doing some grand strategy. Like I use the word, no, no one the has. F word in the way that feels like intuitive to me at the time. So I'll be like, oh, like, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau's uh, uh, COVID mandates are fascist. And I mean it in one sense. And then in another sense, like, I'll be like, well, what about like rehabilitating the image of Italian fascism? You know, like that's like, a you know, and these are two like discontinuous like uses of the word. And like, you know, the mark of like a great intellect is that you're able to like entertain two opposing concepts at the same time but the only way to take the power from libtards in the last 10 years has been to demonstrate that you totally reject their entire framing of everything so you have to break all of those taboos and prove that it means nothing because everything is this little like detective game for them to catch you on something where, Oh, he said the N word. Oh, here's where he admitted to being a real fascist. Oh, this and that. And the N word being the most like it's, it's how it operates now is this magical pseudo religious term of excommunication it's viewed by libtards as a magic spell a dark magic spell um free of free of context obviously you know anyone anyone sane or smart would be able to detect the difference in like a real use of the word with intent which is fine and a uh use of the word where you're merely reading text or talking about the word, which is also fine. Um, but now it's merely a magical spell. Uh, yeah, like it's Salem not fine to be gratuitously cruel to people and to like make these, them feel small. Like, but it just none like of us, none of these white but... people in the scene, not me, not anyone else would have any interest in saying that word if it were not for the last 10 years. And the unfortunate fact of it is that, you since that's one of their biggest tools you just have to say it yeah and you know honestly (laughs) like i would say like the funniest thing about it is like like the funniest use of it is like the nick mullen sense of the word where it's like you don't even say it you just allude to it it's like this like all-powerful like kind of like uh this like abstract like forbidden spell that exists in the ether like this incantation that holds such immense power that it causes explosions or whatever whenever it's uttered like that to me is like the funniest like uh a way to use it and then the second funniest way is like with the soft day when it's like hunter biden like where you know because it's so cringy but like just like saying nigger like as such like has like very little appeal to me except insofar as it's become like this uh you know point of um uh it's just like religious uh uh, hysteria i'm this like bookish effeminate gay guy who hates being in trouble i would Mm -hmm. never have any interest in saying the word if it did not be become you know the hinge upon which this massive cultural and political stakes operate and like that goes back kind of to anonymity and doxing like anonymous people there's always this idea like oh i'm doing it to protect my family because the libs will dox me and ruin my life but when you don't provide them with a story when you're simply totally yourself uh without pretending to be anything else there's not any kind of exciting scoop for the libs when they box you, you <laughs> yeah. know, you give that to and them that's by, why by acting like it's this big secret. From the beginning, like I, uh, you know, 
I've done this basically under my government name with like varying levels of like, you know, different like layers of protection kind of, you know, like I don't like announce my name on my Twitter account. It's not my at or anything, but like, right, yeah, you, like, you, you can tell my security number, like, obviously, right. but, but like, yeah, like my government name's always been out there. Um, you know, I'm basically like a walking invitation for these Kiwi Farms creeps because like, I, I feel like grateful that they haven't discovered how milkable I am because like, you know, there's a lot they could like fucking like, uh, you know, throw, uh, you know, well, the thing is they do like a spectral rape of, you know, they could, you know, they're like, Oh, what this guy has like a podcast about his yellow fever. And like, he's associated with, uh, uh, the personality girl and the perfume nationalist and like all of their favorite lol cows. And he's also like, just like this, like deranged anti-masker. Like there's a lot of like red meat there. Um, you know, and I dread the day that they actually, and also he writes for the epoch times, um, which was my debut on uh, uh, Kiwi Farms, actually, was when they, uh, you know, they posted that article that I wrote where I quoted you because you're a, pod a professional podcaster and, you know, you have thoughts about, like, censorship of podcasts. But the, the as far as all I'll say about that is that whole, you know, all haters are fans, first of all, and there's in this podcast sphere, uh, there's a specific kind of dynamic where um weak sad people become obsessive fans of something and they lack the confidence to state simply and directly that they like it or find something of value in it so they um, do this kind of Joker's mode performance that it's all uh, critique and it's all negative and it's just driven by these kind of poisonous little anonymous online redditor loser scenes but like just don't look at it the only thing to do like it thrives on uh being mentioned and it thrives on attention and the only mm -hmm. they're listening to your every word for something to report back to the their little anthill um so i mean fortunately as, I as that, like my ramps my, up you have the best to learn thing for to my sake is that not, uh not that i um I'm under the radar enough that like, you know, I have just like avoided. But you can't so look far. at it. That's yeah. you, you say that now, but until you experience it, until you experience it where, you know, there's the shock of seeing, Oh, my persona is now out of my hands. And I've reached the point of like internet niche, micro celebrity where I can no longer control this. And there's like paparazzi about me, essentially. Um, you have to truly learn not to look at it and not to mention it and because it, it, it self-replicates and reproduces the more you mention it and many many people go down that terrible path where they start <laughs> trying to argue with uh you know and assert their own dignity in the face of a a faceless massive self-replicating viral horde you'll never win you just have to keep uh doing your work producing things um believing in yourself and it it will get better it gets better like the gay rights campaign but yeah i know the temptation to constantly talk about it at the beginning and and constantly monitor it to see yourself mentioned but yeah no it, it drives yeah me it's like a mix of like flattery and fear like on one hand like you're afraid of being spectrally raped because you see like just like the appetite for cruelty among like uh, uh among the haters like and you, you know, never forget i have like a very small say. taste of it 
you never like all of those all of that text is just emblazoned on your mind like i don't remember what i did yesterday but you know you always anyone who's been through this knows you remember the worst things that are said and it gets to this really like personal grotesque level but uh guess what they're just mad because it isn't them uh-huh well, I appreciate your counsel on this subject. You know, uh, this is something like it's unironically distressing. they can defeat it. That's like I'm not going to like affect like being like stronger than it or being like, oh, I'm no, not no, no. bothered by it. Like I'm genuinely like bothered by the fact that, you know, there are people on the Internet that like, you know, have like deep resentment. Because it's and, like, evil. Want to like go after my job. And like, yeah, they're just like, you know, they're sitting li- around waiting for evil. a chance to practice socially sanctioned cruelty. And like that's not trivial. Like it's a very rational thing to be like a afraid of that to like wake up in the middle of night thinking about like the damage that these people can do to your life um but the you simply cannot argue sanity or morality when faced with a massive anonymous uh multi-headed hydra beast horde that thrives on negativity and cruelty there's no way to win and everybody goes through the same thing everybody thinks when they first see it i can be the one who delivers the massive epic own no one and no because they're operating when dasha stopped posting like a year Uh ago when she stopped shit posting that was right after she had gone up against the hydra headed horde you know Mm -hmm. And it defeated even her <laughs> in, in, in this way, or she, she, or matured her to the point where she no longer wanted a part of this. But, uh, you, you think, you think in your head before you become desensitized to it, there's some voice of reason. There's some voice of sense. No, it's the, it's the mindless, faceless, anonymous camp of the saints horde of evil and you just have to ignore it and know that what you're doing is good and uh, uh-huh. focus on the good things yeah and you know it's because they're operating from like this place beyond criticism like uh, anonymity has like the same role as being a stand-up comic in that it, it it's a way of like exempting yourself from criticism and like the fact is like honestly uh you know there's a lot you could make fun of about me but at the end of the day like people are going to know like i'm basically like a conventionally attractive person like i'm fairly photogenic like uh you know uh my career like uh is off to a slow start but i'm getting there like you know i have a lot going for me in life and like mm, um, they can find yeah. things that'll make you mad you know there's a lot like i said like there's a lot they can pick on but like you know uh i still know like you know if the, it, when when an anonymous like creep like is you know coming at me like well there's no scrutiny that i can apply to like what they look like or you know what their job title is right. or Which like I, uh, I honest to god think that everybody who posts online should be subjected to the passion of the christ flogging of having their <laughs> appearance scrutinized uh-huh. i think that and i i truly think that i think that every like that my li- most libtard trait may be that i think that uh no one should be allowed to be anonymous online. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would it. be like, perfectly happy if everyone had to scan their government ID to post on Twitter and then watch what happens as their 
as photos of themselves are torn apart and critiqued all day, every day. And they all thought that they would be the person unbothered by it. They all thought they would be the one who's too cool for school and can just not look at it. But the fact is, if you're anonymous, then you don't even know what it's like or how that gets in your head or how you have to deal with it. And I think it's healthy. And I, I think that you become a better person after you go through the flogging and learn how to process it and uh yeah and in like, fact become kinder to people when i'm flaming with liberals about like masks or whatever as i'm sometimes want to do like sometimes they'll go back through my media tab and like find a picture of me and it's like well you know you're really grasping at straws but like i, I know exactly what you're gonna say like i have a bad hairline like you know thank you for noticing like uh, <laughs> but there, there's no way around it that like like you can think you think that you're going to outwit them at every turn you think that there's a way around it no there is always going to be one more anon who will deliver you know the the shattering blow um uh, there's it's an know, asymmetrical like conflict like you know they're not uh competing on the same terms you are yeah and there's a reason that you are the one they're talking about and they're just a phantasm like <laughs> It's, um, yeah, if everybody had to go through the same, uh, Passion of the Christ, uh, flogging Cat of Nine Tails, uh, excoriation of their image in order to post online, the internet would probably be a much nicer place. And I don't care how libtarded that sounds, it's true. I fucking hate anonymity and I hate all the excuses i've had to make for it because of like I mean, at that, the very pressure. least like you abandon like your rightful like platform to uh kind of uh uh criticize other people about particular features of their life uh you know and like their appearance or whatever if you're not also like willing to uh subject yourself to but the same all... scrutiny like, like your brother there's... is anonymous but like he's not like out like being like oh well you're ugly or like you know you don't have like a no real job. he doesn't <laughs> like troll. You know, like, the the value of, uh, you know, quote unquote trolling um, in the 2016 sense, like, I understand the kind of art form there. But really, having witnessed it for so many years, like, the anonymity thing basically only leads to people uh, being deranged and shitty to other people. And it's like for these people that are anonymous, right now, they like they uh, their entire like uh, sense of self worth is the sum of their posts. It's like uh, you know they're not creating anything. Like they're not like writing the great American novel or even like failing that the great American podcast. They're just uh, you know it's this totally ephemeral medium. You know their accounts probably going to get deleted like the uh, you know the umpteenth time they said the n word, and it's like going to be like gone like tears and rain. Like it's like just like uh, totally ineffectual because like they're not willing to stake anything for it. And then they'll retroactively like narrativize that as them maturely leaving the internet and the world of shit posting. In <laughs> actuality, they failed at everything and were uh-huh. just nasty and unpleasant and have no uh, friendships to show for it. Um, what I mean, it like taps into something very dark in like the human id when you're given like an unlimited platform to criticize. Even if nobody's listening, you know, uh, even if like you only have like four followers or whatever, um, this unlimited like leverage to criticize someone with no accountability on your own. But it's also the impulse to criticize. 
is the dominant safe impulse of today where it's a way of being guarded emotionally because if you say anything is good or acknowledge any kind of like hierarchy of goodness or admit that a work of art or a particular person uh, impacted you positively, it's kind of admitting that there are spiritual realities at work and that you're not just this kind of jaded little atheistic sitcom character who's over everything and has this, you know, over it Daria kind of cynical viewpoint. The cynical phrasing everything as critique, you know, trying to get like your little upvotes that way um, by being sort of smarmy and uh, double-edged about any praise you might give. That's the fact of it is that's just safe. It's, it's um, pablum. It's just like crowd pleasing bullshit and nonsense, but you won't attract any uh, quality people that way. Well, and the thing is like, when you people say like, you it. don't Good like something, it puts people on edge because like they start to feel self-conscious about like liking that thing. Right. And they'll be much uh, less likely to and come out and to, be like, oh, like that's actually good than if they like virulently believe this thing is bad. And like, you know, it's like importance, like on like Letterboxd and stuff, you see the way people regard movies and like great directors. Uh -huh. And there's a simple formula to like feeling important and feeling kind of intellectual, intellectually superior right now, which is to find some universally praised director or classic and say that you uniquely found it to be shitty. You were the first person in history who found Stanley Kubrick or whatever it is to be totally shitty. And this is not what you think it is. You think it says that you're Daria. You think it says that you have your arms crossed and there's that la 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 la. Like this it's kind like, of like, no, you've like lost all no, sense of actually, joy. Like, you're an insecure, mealy mouth little loser who stands for nothing and will commit You've lost your ability to, to appreciate things. Yeah. Like you, you know, you have to like say things like, you have to like posit things about the world and like, you know, lay out like a vision of what's good. And like, you know, I mean, you've listened to this podcast. Like, I honestly like very very seldom like talk like about like art that i don't like or like that's you why know, i've been signal. able to listen to like 25 hours of you speak in in like three <laughs> weeks number one you have a very pleasing voice oh thank you um a pleasing relaxing voice i feel like i'm in some kind of like turkish lounge or you know some kind of some kind of prior era you have a like, conversational <laughs> talent um well, i appreciate uh, it but yeah, also the podcast is not just about, it's not about number one current events or policy wonk leftist nonsense. Uh -huh. um, it's about things that you like and people that you like. So that makes And it I like out. basically everyone until they like come at me with hostility. Like that, that's like the, no. you know, that's like, and I, my, you know, there are like movies that I might think like, you know, oh, I really don't like that like you know that's not like my cup of tea but they're honestly like vanishingly rare like i'm really like easy to everything. please i'm I like, like easy like to please in like most I like things. all movies yeah I, yeah I'm like literally like i very seldom go to a restaurant and think like oh i didn't like that like i'm like pretty much any <laughs> restaurant experience like, I if i go out to eat i'm just like oh that's so good like you know <laughs> no i'm elizabeth taylor with like infinite appetites i love all food i love all men i love all movies i love all books i really i mean truly even like the stuff that i complain about i the hulu pablum diversity <laughs> pablum like i like it to some degree um i just 
that's where all of my passions in life have been directed. Uh, do you mind if I smoke a cigarette? Yeah, no, I was going to ask to uh, uh, relieve myself as well. So, Okay, I'll be back in a couple minutes. <sighs> all right, see you then. I guess uh, to get back into it. Well, I wanted to talk about like podcasting on a more formal level because you talk about podcasts a lot. Like you defend uh, podcasting as an art form. Uh, but, you know, I'm really interested in, in like the formal aspect, like the, the um, you know, the idea that this is recorded sound and recorded sound is like an entirely new medium. It has its entirely unique set of poetics. Like you can like resurrect it on command um, and like, it, it, you know, basically like conjure this like ephemeral performance at will over and over again. And that's something that's so interesting to me because that actually puts it like more like literature, like print literature than it is like um, like any auditory medium before the advent of recorded sound. And so I'm right. really interested in like uh, um, like Italian futurism and music concrete because it's like so interested in like the um, potential of like the new form. That's why I've used uh, uh, some of that uh, music in, in the podcast before. But um, just, uh, well, I guess to get off my high horse a little bit, like, uh, I don't know if there's anything uh, that you have to say on that subject that like about like what it means specifically to put audio to record, like, I mean, let's see, going back, it's all influenced for me by the power of AM conservative talk radio, Rush Limbaugh specifically, who after being mad that my conservative parents listened to Rush Limbaugh as like an Obama teenager, I finally listened after reading Camille Paglia's glittering images, the intro of which she is uh, exalting the glory of AM talk radio and the power of it where you hear voices that you hear nowhere else in American society. So it stems from that to me, but the the non-linear way that people consume it and the way that it's uploaded um, as permanent episodes that anyone can refer to at any time, but it's impromptu live performance as well uh, adds another dynamic because it's not uh, disposable in the way that radio is where it just disappears. Like people are always coming mm -hmm. to it um at different times and this is why i've always um kind of been interested in the narrative potential of podcasts the organic narratives it's not really it's not like planned it's not like like no, I have but, these like yeah, but master schemes but you listen to the whole thing and you get it because characters come in and out there are conflicts it's you know, I'm, I'm obviously influenced by soap opera, but mm -hmm. when I listen to other people's pods, you know, from the beginning, I can't imagine listening to it any other way because you miss so much uh, narratively rich material if you just dip in. Mm -hmm. I mean, my fear with that is always like the learning curve. Like I found like uh, the thing that's convinced me that podcasting is an art form more than anything else is just how difficult it is to get it right. And I really feel like you just like, uh, I mean, you had like a very clear vision of what you wanted to do from the very beginning. 
um, which I think is rare. I think that uh, pretty much every podcast, you know, a lot of people like delete their very first episodes because they didn't have like the chemistry for it yet. Um, I really didn't th- like like the first episode is just our first conference call about doing the podcast, and then we just kept doing it. What, like problematics elixir. Yeah, uh, that was our very first phone conversation about it. Um, but like that, like I don't know, that's like enshrined as a classic. Like that's like, a, <laughs> like thank you. <laughs> you know, there are a few episodes that I feel like are like events. Um, you know, on a very small scale, but like you know, a few perfume nationalists that like are events, and that's one of them. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the first few are like that, like Bronze Age mindset, um, and then Bijan and uh, and Elizabeth takes off. I think her, you know, on that uh, on that scale. But like, um, you know, I don't know, like I never would have thought that this was anything less than like a totally like mature, like fully realized vision from the beginning. Um, I admit, like I haven't listened to it on your terms from beginning to end yet. Um, And I feel like the reason behind that is like I've sunk so much cost in like listening to everything out of order about like probably like 75 percent of it at this point. That Yeah, but it doesn't matter. You can go back. I mean, (laughs) right. Right. There's no like. A dogmatic way to approach it it's just and, it, and it gets better like the more that you uh, uh kind of immerse yourself in it so it's just a matter of time but uh um but no i totally understand the appeal of that because like even like uh listening to it in like this schizophrenic way like um you know those narratives shine through like <laughs> i got like the the uh, the like Thai e arc and the uh the jugs arc and the, like uh your brother having like his kid and like like i think like the first like a few times I was listening to like uh, Orton baby era. Like I was like, I thought that it was like a sound effect. I'm like, what is this like avant-garde affectation that they're doing where they put the the sound of a baby, like, (laughs) like crying in the background. And I think it was like, uh, it was a while before I realized like, no, that's an actual baby, which adds like a lot. Right. Because like you're seeing like, and that's something that um, I think is probably like apparent in, my show as well like this has been like a an extremely like a uh, uh trying period in my life like and you, you know you know like i was fucking like broke last summer like just like trying to scrape together and then like the objective humiliation of having to like move in with my brother and then like the the redemption arc of getting the epoch times job like that's all there like uh you know i try to like it's a diary it's a diary <laughs> yeah. i mean it's a diary i was never i always wanted to keep a perfect like you know movie picture perfect little girl diary of every day and I didn't ever do it successfully until this, where it took on another form. Mm-hmm. But like talk radio, like that's like uh, just because of the medium, like it's actually like very difficult to be a completist about it unless you have like an archive. Uh, and you know, soap operas too. I mean, daytime it's like soaps, totally like, ephemeral. Yeah. The, you know, the inspiration is daytime soaps and these plot lines have been going on in some cases since the 30s where they originated as radio, like guiding light. So... You're never going to be able to, I I love the uncontainable aspect of it. You're never going to be able to see all of it. It would take your entire life, Um, but you should try. There's something to be said for the attempt. And I, you know, I totally get what you mean when you talk about being a completist too, because like sometimes like I uh, read like the front matter of books, like I read like the copyright page or whatever, just because I want to be like absolutely like, no, I read oh, me the book too. cover to I cover. Feel, I like, don't feel like I read it unless I read every page. And the, and it's all for nothing. It's like for my own like 
a psychological like uh weird neuroticism no it's like uh, it, it's like an it's like an autism of sorts like you're like no i read the book like i, I love has a very, looking at has a, a very literal definition on the show yeah and yeah like just like process every single word like that's what reading a book means to me like that's been very intuitive but, to me for a long time and like i think that's because like you know when you're younger like you know there's like a temptation to like over represent yourself and lie about what you read and so i feel like just like being very absolutist about it it's like which is epidemic in the pdf reader era of the on twitter all the like galaxy brain geniuses who post like four pdf screenshots there's this kind of like bizarrely tolerated pretension of uh believing that 25 year olds have read all of these massive difficult books and like i'm a i'm a big reader i've been a big reader my entire life and i've still only read like 10 books <laughs> well you know like like it takes so much time to read a book especially a big difficult one and here you have all these like galaxy brains coming on being like have you read this have you read this have you read this and it's mm-hmm. so obviously fake and they get mad when you call it out i remember one time i like tweeted about it like why do people just like silently tolerate this kind of uh lie that all of these precocious 22 year old college students have read all of these theorists and everything everyone knows that it's not true and then uh, the tweet took off and it got sure enough got quote tweeted by like people who were saying like actually uh you don't have to read the entirety of a thing uh actually it's more sophisticated a skill i learned in college is skimming um and this is a sophisticated technique that real academics use and i'm like no that's not really reading right. no but you like, didn't actually also, read like, the book you know i mean that's like a tool that's in your arsenal but like you don't have to say that you read the book like that's what i like but that's how i engage with philosophy like i you know i talk about like hegel i talk about like uh you know whatever philosopher like appeals to me based on like a secondhand account i've gotten of their ideas yeah, like natural. like i've read like vanishingly few like uh like actual philosophy books um i you know and i used to read a lot to be honest like i uh there were like two years when i was in college that i I did the thing on goodreads where i would actually like catalog like every book that i read and um and there were two years when i got like over 60 books i think but um and you know some of them are like like pamphlets or whatever like scum manifesto or communist manifesto whatever uh you know some of them are like behemoths like the decameron or divine comedy but like um and i'll be honest like uh the past two years or so my reading is definitely like slumped and now i basically like only read for podcasts um i i think there's um a very underrated and uh impressive dignity in choosing to devote your life to the study of a few works mm-hmm. you know which i at this point i'm always reading something for the podcast and basically i feel like my life is devoted to the study of like gone with the wind and clarissa and you know as, after a few years pass i just want to um reread the same thing which in the you know Mm-hmm. high-speed information internet age everybody wants uh to dip their toes into like as many things as possible because it's all available and but i'm I like that too thinking but... of it just like you know you're like Whoopi goldberg in the color purple where she just has that one copy of like <laughs> oliver twist that she's reading for like 10 years in that rocking uh, chair like that's how i am i i reread a book for like the first time in years uh like uh last uh, a few months ago because i uh i was uh, for my uh, episode of the pleasure helmet 
uh, I reread like uh, what I say is like my favorite novel, Beer in the Snook Club. And um, I it, that was like the first time in a long time because I, you know, I'm very much like uh, what you're saying, like it's actually um, it, it makes sense to me. Like I have friends that are like that too, but it's like the difference between like uh, depth over breadth. And I've always like kind of identified as a breadth person. Like I'm interested in like basically everything. And I know a little about a lot of things. I mean, me too. Like you can kind of have it both ways, but uh -huh. th this inner, your ambitions uh, curtail are curtailed by the reality of aging and time passing and everything. So I have this massive library. I buy tons of books. I buy any book that I'm remotely interested in reading the instant I hear about it. Um, and I will never get around to reading all these books in my life, but the pursuit of it and attempting to do it is what keeps me going. I just love it i love staring at a massive library and being like i could never read all of these but i'll try mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's like a the ultimate like uh, kind of acknowledgement of humility um actually uh nassim Taleb, who's very out of fashion right now but he uh he writes about this in the black swan where he uh has a chapter about uh umberto echo's library and uh his friends would come over and they would see his huge library and they'd be like how do you read all of these books he's like oh i hardly read any of them like uh yeah you know, I mean, it's, that's the it's there as a reminder of his ignorance of like the uh, person i believe on the on that end is john waters like john waters is a massive reader and you know he said something to the degree of like there's nothing more impotent than an unread bookshelf i've read everything on the shelf and i uh -huh. kind of believe him because he simply had so much time over the years um mm -hmm. but for the vast majority of people almost everyone it's an unattainable goal but it's so satisfying to um have this library as a continually expanding like behemoth uh, and then finally it takes several months to read some like difficult like thousand page thing and be able to put put it back in its little like sliver on the shelf and look at that and be like I've read every page of that oh and that was like my experience with uh like the Decameron which was probably like my first foray into like reading as an adult like I always read a lot as a kid uh when I was in high school I was more interested in being a libertine and like didn't really have the attention span for it but when I, uh, you know, when I went to uh, Italy for my freshman year of college, um, I just like uh, picked up the Decameron almost on a whim. And I found it like so readable in this translation that I had. Um, and, you know, I like seriously devoted myself to that. And uh, and that was really like the birth pangs of like my literary consciousness, I would say, oh. my mature literary consciousness. Have you read the Decameron by chance? I haven't. I have a oh, you would love it. Though. I have a like, beautiful like <laughs> '60s hardcover copy staring at me in the face right here. You know. I oh, know I the, think you would I really know the uh, appreciate. Movie. I'm sure it. I would like it. Um, yeah, I I don't. Well, I mean, I have like uh, hangups about the Pasolini movie because. Um, because I'm so devoted to it as like this like cosmic like large scale work that like just like it's a hundred stories like it's the largeness of it to me is the point and so to like take excerpts from it like is a little perplexing to me but I'm just being a little autistic about it because I'm like so feels pretty damn big <laughs> yeah that trilogy people hate those people hate Pasolini um yeah I think I'm just being autistic about it because I am like so devoted to it as a, a um 
as the cohesive work. But weirdly, mm-hmm. I don't have the same instinct about uh, the Yukio Mishima movie. Like that to me is just like perfectly realized. In fact, it, you know, in some ways it feels like more fully realized than the novels that it portrays. But um, that also, you know, the foreignness of it uh, helps uh, make it seem more like comprehensive because like you're not Japanese, so you don't know the full scale of like that's that movie is what most people know about Mishima. Um, so it, <laughs> yeah. and the movie is really like outside of time and really unusual. Um, and it seems to really know what it's doing, even though most people, when they watch that, they have no idea what's going on. And then they find out afterwards from Wikipedia or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it just has a certain confidence. Um, yeah, but, yeah, I, I'm thinking about now about uh, how you like d- devote yourself to the study of a few massive works and the way the way that it took me three years to watch all 14 seasons of Knots Landing and like five years to watch all 14 seasons of Dallas with my parents. And then I just started immediately over again. So I have it as this. Uh, continuous like ambient soundtrack going throughout my entire life and I get I never get tired of it um, <laughs> it's uh, but when I you know my my biggest achievement as a reader which I talk about a lot is definitely having read every page of Clarissa um, which came at a very specific time in my life where I had disavowed uh, social media forever after uh, Trump got elected and I was just like, I'm never going to go online ever again. So I got all of this reading done, really difficult reading. And it took me six months, but I got through that whole thing and it blew my mind. And, you know, we were talking earlier about we're both people who like generally like everything. Um, I like everything that I read. <laughs> like when I, when I like finish a book, I'm just like, Oh, I finished it. I love that book. I've I definitely know. had books that I had to like slog through. And there's like, really, definitely like, less like, pleasant like, experience. Actually, I think that like, I'm probably like more critical of books because like there's more of a time commitment. And so you feel more betrayed uh, uh, if it doesn't like reveal itself to you. Yeah. Yeah. You feel more betrayed, but also like, when something is really unpleasant as you're forcing yourself to read it, um, when you finally finish it and can look at it, like Rousseau's Confessions, I read the entirety of all 600 pages. Um, in hindsight, I loved it. I love the weirdness of it. And I'm really glad I got through it. I, I read it in like two spurts over the course of a year with like six months between them, which is how I read a lot of things. Um, but yeah, the whole time I was reading it, it was hell. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, when I read, <laughs> I like, like, I don't want to be like, honestly, I, I do, book, I do I not have, have like the patience to read philosophy anymore. Like, um, I have read like probably like very few like full books of philosophy, and um, it just does not appeal to me at this stage in my life. Well, most of it's, I'm pretty, um, what's the word? I don't believe in most philosophy, I think most of that is. It, it tends to be kind of overrated because, you know, I had the do- I was exposed to the dominant philosopher of my life, Camille Paglia, who's at like age 18 or 19. And she's like so lively and funny and presents everything in such an entertaining manner. And 
uh, it's mm-hmm. also so edifying and you learn so much. such a broad scope of material and how to look at the world. But then you go back to the, like the drier stuff and you're like, which I did in like the half of a graduate degree that I completed. And I was like, mm-hmm. why can't this simply be more fun? And I think a lot of it is really kind of smoke and mirrors. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Those that I do have like uh, the taste for now, like are like the more literary philosophers. Like I still think like Nietzsche is like fun to read. And, I, know, I, know, I don't, I don't, I don't I've even never agree. read Nietzsche. I have. I just bought Nietzsche from Barnes and Noble. <laughs> I mean, like uh, Twilight of the Idols was like one of the few books I read in high school, and that is like, um, it, like I think it's just like really fun. Like, um, there's like a lyricism to it, and also like Nietzsche. Like, um, not only is he like one of the few philosophers who's actually like funny, which I think is like a necessary value for creating great literature. Um, he's also like one of the few Germans who's funny um well i know that i'll love him i just have an instinct that usually proves correct where if i i look at something and read a little bit about it and nietzsche has been this you know like like i know what nietzsche is and he informs like basically everything that i like um so i know when i finally get around to reading it that i will uh like it but really my main polemic these days is i want people to read fiction i want people to read popular fiction from prior to the 2000s because there's this kind of like anti-fiction sentiment that has been dominant with like hipsters and young people yeah, i'm always surprised when people tell me they don't like fiction like that to you, me like it's not it's it's, it's not a guilty pleasure made. like but it's like so like like reading fiction never felt like a guilty pleasure to me like if i'm reading like you know especially like uh you know highbrow novels so to speak that um that's never felt like something to be embarrassed about, but it's something that my joy in it is totally unaffected. Like it's something that's intuitive and fun and like, just like it may be challenging, like in terms of the content of it, but it's like easy in the sense that I just like, like doing it. But um, that, that's such a, like the, like I don't read fiction thing. It's such a recited received signifier type opinion people really don't know what they're talking about because if you actually read any like popular airport fiction airport paperback fiction from prior to the 90s or 2000s you realize just how uh literary and beautifully elaborately constructed it all is stuff like judith Krantz's scruples judith gould's sins all of these massive Massive paperback uh, romance epics of the 80s and 70s, this, the kind of stuff that was adapted into many series that everybody read before social media and before um, TV was so ubiquitous because everyone just had time. Like everybody kind of has now has this received idea that they are superior to that stuff because they've seen it referred to as trash. They're actually incorrect. And you actually read that stuff which no one reads anymore no one reads from here to eternity anymore mm-hmm. um oh i no want one... to like i've been oh uh, it's amazing it's wanting amazing. to get my hands on a copy of that because um, but that's just what dumb i like anything with like hawaii like yeah people read 
Yeah, and like people, I mean, like, you know, I honestly think like it was good for your soul that you didn't have like these distracting technologies, like, uh, you know, TV included, like radio included, even though like I think that radio shows are good and like some TV shows are like high art too, like, and, you know, podcasts are like uh, great art too. But like, you know, if you don't have that in your life, like you're going to find like uh, in more uh, intensive forms of kind of a... Uh, self-entertainment and like people had like a capacity for like 1000 page books before the advent of these new media social media is the ultimate entertainment i don't think they'll ever invent anything that's more addictive and more destructive and stupider than social media and everybody kind of knows on some level that it's bad but everybody also participates and doesn't truly believe in the value of logging off for a while like for me to read I have to put my phone in the other room mm-hmm. and I I read in like 25 or 50 page chunks and I have to get up and like move around. I'll check the phone after that. Um, but, you know, I, it, I'm sure some of it comes from me like quitting my job and like having more leisure time uh, lately. But like you really have, I I'm I've become one of those like log off touch grass people because the discourse is so bad and so stupid. And even if you stay stay away for from it for even like twenty four hours, you see just how bleak and futile it is to see uh, four mm-hmm. screenshot collages about seed oils about the state <laughs> of the left and like all of these people could be reading scruples during uh-huh. that time. They could be reading great fiction of the past they could be reading shocking fiction of the past um they could be yeah and i can tell like that that is um like you know the times in my life where i've like read the most were like the times when i could just like uh leave my phone in my room like go outside with a book and just like spend time there in the sun whatever like uh, oh my god the secret um, garden that's it's like that's what i envisioned adult life would be like when i was in elementary school it was just like you woke up and kind of like read books and like had tea and painted pictures you know they all this was all like filtered down and there can be no compromise like these like technologies like i'm like you know people will always scoff at like well, you, there's no serious solution where you just say, like, decelerate or get rid of it. It's like, but you have to. Like, there's no compromise. There's not going to be, like, a world where, like, most people are going to have, like, the self-discipline to, like, do edifying things for themselves. Unless you just straight up say, like, no, you're not going to carry around this thing in your pocket called a phone. And you can't answer to people about it. That's the thing. Is like, people... People on Twitter will like, uh, you know, get too heated and they'll be like, I'm leaving Twitter. They'll make an announcement. They'll deactivate. They'll do things that visually indicate that they are having a meltdown. And you have to learn how not to do that. How even if you are having a meltdown in your dealings with social media, you have to present as if you are not. So you, if you're if you're getting quote tweeted, if you're getting canceled, if you're the main character of the day, you cannot deactivate. You cannot go private. You cannot respond. The, these are the mistakes that all the like Bernie leftists, the first time a tranny quote tweets them, make. They'll they'll mm-hmm. they'll they'll, dea- they'll uh, go private or they'll deactivate, which is feeding into it because then it's an admission of guilt. But you have to just kind of be able to. Uh, drift off, leave your phone in the other room, say, I am reading Gone with the Wind today, 
I'm going to read 50 pages. Um, and that's what you do. And you will find that the world is so much more beautiful. And if you're promoting like media, if you're a podcaster, obviously you need social media. Well, that's my excuse. Special... Like, that's why I feel like I'm in too deep to like do that anymore. Like, uh, it, why it's become like so much harder, like, uh, in the last year or so, um, to like, uh, log off and touch grass and, you know, do things that are edifying for me, um, and not check up on that because, you know, I have this excuse. I'm like, Oh, well, I'm trying to like publicize my art. Right. Like I'm trying to like reach like a larger audience and to some extent it all is tied into that but um <laughs> uh i i think actually the more voices there are um and the bigger you get the easier it is to compartmentalize it mm -hmm. and a secret which amy therese told me which is at this point buried in uh you know two hours and 22 minutes in this episode um <laughs> is to turn off notifications for everyone but mutuals um so you obviously have all the notifications like direct to your phone off. Like the, the app has to be its own little Pandora's box where you don't see any notifications for it. But if you yeah. only see notifications from mutuals and people that you like, it makes your world, your online world so much uh, friendlier because you'll see the hate, but you have to like click on it to see it. It's like kind of, it's just like kept behind a wall. And so you can like tweet more authentically. You can compartmentalize it. Huh. I'm just going off. But yeah, when you have, when you don't have that turned on, you just see uh, the constant deluge of the camp of the saints, faceless anonymous hordes, and <laughs> it affects your psyche and you think that everyone's against you, but then you don't even see it if you have... <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that's um i i don't know i honestly like the every time i really get a lot of hate is like when i walk into it like and i knowingly walk into it like if i'm just like gonna like drop like you know just like my unabashed opinion when i see something that really annoys me or like i you know honestly like my uh my greatest weakness is probably just like going at it in the replies with like libs on like a lib post about the mask and just like you know spiraling and like you know right like spazzing like paragraphs at them that nobody except for like there's one person about whom i know nothing is going to read and not understand or comprehend at all um you know i feel like it's like my patriotic duty to like uh, be out there like uh uh you know spreading anti-mask propaganda and there's and value in that it's fun you just have to uh learn that you know as with sex like you have to have like the pallian view of sex where sex libertinism has a value okay but sex always has consequences uh like nature moby dick will always come like you know bite you in the ass there will always there's never going to be consequence free sex just like there's never going to be consequence free shit posting so like i'll do it yeah. by and large i like don't do that much anymore i just like retweet like knots landing um and dallas like recaps um but some days after it's been a while i'll just get the sudden inspiration and be like i want to tweet about ayn rand mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and i know that it's going to be a three-day 
saga after that, but it's so fucking fun for a while just to see people get mad again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, you feel violated, but, like, yeah, there probably is, like, you know, as this is, like, a sexual performance when they try to, like, cancel you, when they try to, like, uh, drag your name through the mud. Um, There is probably, like, a parallel, like, phenomenon where you feel, like, uh, uh, sick pleasure in being violated, you know? Um, you know, I don't want to like romanticize it, like, uh, you know, because it's like really destructive and it like, you know, ruins people's lives. But like, you know, if you're to get like dogpiled like that, there's something very, uh, um, sexual about it. (laughs) No, it's explicitly sexual. It's, um, as I said, all real natural sexuality has been banned uh from polite society and that sexual energy is explicitly directed and rerouted to cancel campaigns which are gang rapes they are this is like gang rapes per- in cyberspace and after i got so much shit for coming up with the term spectral rape and using that all the time uh fast forward a year later uh, we see that like um, New York Times or whatever article about that woman like saying she was gang raped in Facebook meta virtual reality, and I was just like, <laughs> "Oh, I was so right!" Yeah. Um, no, it's like, totally sexual. I mean, I I think that like uh, um, the like it's a particular feature of the technology too this is like a very like 1984 way to like um leverage sexual repression in an unnatural way because i think like repression is actually like a very positive force um i think that like just like um like you know being catholic like you know being on like three years of no fap and like you know just like that energy like and having to live with that like i can totally see how that gets rerouted into like this uh uh uh, like online like uh uh ritual sacrifice whatever but like if it were not for that like i feel like it would actually be like a very like positive creative influence yeah the the explicitly sexual aspect of cancel culture and pylons and uh and whatnot it's the same thing psychological mechanism at work when actual gang rapes happen because um most you know 95 percent of people in a situation like that with like a bunch of guys would not want to participate in a gang rape uh but it's the collective libido it's the collective like okay this is what we're gonna do uh are you a man or not we're gonna do this um obviously like um digital gang rapes spectral rape has different consequences from uh physical rape which you know in the me too era i'm convinced no one's been raped for real since prior to 2010 um everything else is kind of like fake me too kind of like he was awkward on a date type stuff um, but being a libtard fundamentally at root at base means that you're a shitty person 
And this is something that everyone tries to run from. Everybody wants to have this like nuanced, like all sides, both sides, gray area kind of view of culture and politics where they're like, well, I can understand all sides. No, as someone who has remained totally unchanged my entire adult life, as culture has changed around me, I can tell you 100% for sure if you're still a libtard or you have libtard impulses within you, mm-hmm. you're a shitty, weak, nasty, bad person. That's what that means. That's the only thing that that means. And you project your your little limp dick capacity for empathy, uh, which is actually just cowardice and social acceptance. Um, into this sanctioned political identity. So all libtards are trash. I mean, it's hard for me to like, uh, uh, you know, assent to that because like, I don't like to like judge people. Like I don't like to, you know, set up boundaries about like, who's like worthy to hang out with or whatever. But like, I understand because. Oh, it's not a hang out thing. No, I mean, you can like, but I can sense it. Yeah. And you can only be betrayed by these people like so many times before, um, uh, you start to like just be unabashedly prejudiced about it. It's like no, it's after like you know how many times does it have to like end with them being like horrible to me before I'm just like no, like I liked the aesthetic of like being like open minded enough to be like really like edgy in my personal beliefs, but also Everyone just like hang out with people that are different. But like honestly, like you know every time I like humor it, like they, you know, it's either like, it's just like cruelty or like inept betrayal. Like, um, you learn, you learn after a certain number of times, you learn exactly what's going to happen there. And these kinds of identities explicitly, explicitly prey on good natured, you know, normal people like us who, Especially if you're like a white person, a white male, most of all, you, no matter how much of an edgelord you are, you constantly want to prove that you are not actually racist and you're not actually transphobic and you're not actually prejudiced. Um, so these people come along and they glom on to you and they admire you and they flatter you and all this stuff. But the fundamental problem with transgenders is that they, at the root of their ideology, is that they think that they can alter reality and that they can alter the past and they can erase the past and control things on this like supernatural level because they have not accepted the fact that they were born in the gender that they were born into. It's this kind of satanic deal that they make that totally drives them crazy, no matter how base they can be, uh, where if they believe sincerely that they were born into the wrong body, then they think that they can alter reality and they think that they can alter pronouns. But as far as being friends with libtards, I'm friendly with libtards. I'm friendly with everyone. Um, I try to treat everyone well and find something in common with every type of person, no matter how normy they are. But having been a pariah due to my pretty like mundane centrist political beliefs since 2015, 
I know that you cannot allow true libtards into your personal life because they will betray you because they have all of the power. You, Everyone thinks after Trump, after all of this, that they can preserve their old relationships and their old friendships with people who used to be cool and uh, went down the libtard pipeline and became radicalized by this propaganda that was forced at them from every media outlet. Um, the libtard will betray you. They will slum with you. They will say politically incorrect things with you and kind of have fun with you and be like, I'm, I kind of accept you. But when it comes down to it, the libtard will betray you. And the more you deal with it, the more you recognize innate libtardism. It's like this like stone, you know, in the, in their this like jewel, like secret of Nim jewel that's like in their heart. Like, I know you're a libtard. You can mm -hmm. spot it. Mm -hmm. And the predictable thing will happen. Yeah, yeah. And that uh, desire for, you know, conformity is, I think, like the governing principle of it. Like, there's a moral weakness that people want to um, be in consensus with the group. You know, probably like my closest like uh, liberal friend um you know other than like uh, uh someone i've alluded to before who's like a gay bipolar jewish scientist but he's honestly like so um uh so like uh mentally erratic that he almost doesn't have like stable beliefs but like other than him like you know i have like one remaining libtard friend who um it's very self-deprecating about that, uh, given like the circles that he affiliates with. Um, and, you know, he's just been very blunt with me. Like, he's just like, I think it's cringe that you don't want to conform. Yeah. Like, I don't believe the mask works. See, that's nice when they know how it operates. Right. And he's like, I don't believe that the mask really makes like a meaningful difference. Um, I think it's cringe that you don't just accept society's rules because that's how you become a functioning person. And, but, you know, and I've seen this person like be very loyal to me, like, uh, uh, in times when it really mattered. Um, <laughs> right. But, but like, you know, I just see like, the, like, I'm just like, how can you live like this? Like your mind is more powerful than this. I, I feel like it's like a deeply ingrained, almost genetic thing, like sexual orientation or something like people's desire for conformity and their belief in conformity um because anonymous right-wingers become libtards in the end because if you the person who is not anonymous um are drawing attention to yourself by speaking against libtardism you are by proxy hurting everyone you know you're you're drawing the attention of Antifa and all the liberals to everyone's families. You're harming everyone's family. So they've created this little system where no one can ever speak the truth because it would harm everyone else. This is kind of like selfishness uh, discourse type of thing. However, one thing that I've noticed is that you can't be friends with people who knew you before your red pill transformation, um, they will never accept it. They will never accept that someone that they knew and loved, um, especially pertinent in the case of me, because they like, 
they usually liked everything that I was about, like all that. And they were impressed by you, right? Like, yeah, I, I was exactly that... the same. And they were like, oh, he's my exciting gay friend who says all these like crazy things. Uh, yeah. And, they and found not only that, brilliant. like there's like a, there's almost like a, an aspect of idolization. Yeah, they know? loved me. No, they loved me. Um, but then 2015 hit and I stayed the same and the pictures got smaller and uh, they cannot cross that ravine of still liking you after ending up on opposite sides of Trump. Uh, however, <laughs> if the if you meet a libtard who after that, after Trump, after that transformation and you didn't know them before and they know what you're about, they can kind of like you. It will be the dynamic of them slumming and they will eventually abandon you. They'll have fun with you for a, a while, like a prostitute, like, yeah, like actually just think like a this transgender fuck. stuff is kind of <laughs> out of control, but I wouldn't say uh -huh. that around my real friends, uh, uh -huh. you know, the rich Asians and whatnot. The real A-list gays, um, and they'll eventually. But you know, for those people you. that like used to like idolize you because they thought you were just like so powerful, so transgressive, and like different. Like I feel like I've had friendships like that too, and those are the ones that I'm a little bit cold about, like uh, uh, reconnecting with because you know I don't want to end up in that position. And now it's like unavoidable. It's like you know I'm not going to put the mask on to like go into this place, and then you know th then this becomes like this whole thing where they actually like into it correctly how i feel about black lives matter and like uh you know uh <laughs> gay marriage and like any number of other issues that have nothing to do with it but like they you know those are the people that idolized you at one point and it's almost as though like that becomes their opening to assert themselves um against like someone that they used to be impressed by um yeah and to like stake their own claim which is very natural and i'm actually like very empathetic to that but like you just you know it, it is like uh treacherous at the same time and like you know there's a, very few things in like christendom that are considered less uh virtuous and they're so manipulative and so because they pay for nothing they've taken the safe safe path so they pay for nothing um and they still think that they're morally superior to you for conforming and they think that it's a favor that they're doing for extending the olive branch especially when it comes uh, becomes clear to them that you have some form of clout or that you've mm -hmm. succeeded at something in the meantime um but i think there's a real spiritual divide between that crosses party lines between fundamental spiritual libtards who are weak conformists who naturally sympathize with um, weakness and then people who are the the kind of fountainhead individualists who have the self-confidence necessary to uh enact a certain vision and say what they really believe in a matter of fact way and as if there were no other option uh which there are far few of fewer of like most people are spiritual libtards even if they are conservative right-wing republican whatever if you have natural sympathies towards weakness and you resent 
strong personalities, you're a spiritual libtard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like heartbreaking. Like, um, you know, it's genuinely like devastating to um, feel like you have no judgment in your heart. Like you have your moral beliefs, but um, that you're still welcoming to anyone that disagrees, basically. And to like feel uh, persecuted by you, the ones that you hold dear. I don't they know. Like, I'm honestly, over like over and over again, they do it over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard not to, uh, you know, come back to that place. Um, because you know you don't want to. You don't want to be the person drawing those lines you don't want to be the person excluding someone else based on their beliefs you don't want to be the judgmental one um no but you see you see over and over again like the uh impulse against stereotypes and the sort of instruction that everyone receives uh, about the evils of stereotypes, where it basically presents stereotypes as um, something in a vacuum created by an evil white man with power uh, mm-hmm. just to be evil, like Dr. Evil. Um, when what stereotypes actually are is the result of accumulated data, data in your head, um, generations of human data in service of self-protection where, you know, I look at a certain type of person and they might have these traits which will harm me. And in the liberal netherworld where it's like Alice in Wonderland, like Dodo land, opposite day, everything is the opposite of objective truth which is deliberate in order to um, make you scared of speaking publicly anything about objective truth. Uh, You want to see the best in everyone. And having done this for so long and talked to and known so many people, conservatives are almost uniformly really nice, warm, forgiving, open-minded people who will accept everyone. Uh, You know, they will accept everyone into their group despite any, you know, brooches of propriety or political correctness or whatever. They're welcoming to everyone. And over and over again, you see the patterns repeat where... You extend, you uh, allow someone from one of these marginalized groups, whether it's transgender, whether it's black, um, whether it's just uh, you know a feminist type woman. Uh, you see them just come in and then eventually predictably betray you in a really unwarranted and like nasty manner. What are you supposed to do with that? What are you supposed to do with that information? I just think, um, well, you know, like the idea of stereotypes are like generalizations in particular. Like you can't say anything about um, any group based on your observations of their behavior 
even if it's something is like like as simple as women like like men and women it's like since times immemorial people have understood this like and i honestly feel like that's why like nobody has really been canceled for saying misogynistic stuff um not right. really to the same extent like they they had to invent me too where it's actually like you're acting out misogynistic stuff because like it's so um limp and ineffectual to cancel someone for being misogynistic right and misogyny um, because like people every, everyone everyone thing but everyone intuitively understands it like everyone intuitively understands the concept that men and women are there's a type difference between the way that they process the world um and any like radical like extreme i mean you know as long as it's not just like this performative like exercise in cruelty like if you're just like a trad that's just like no actually beating your wife is good which is totally a performance right um but like and when it's not that like when you're just making descriptive observations about women um nobody can really cancel you for it because everyone agrees with it in their heart you know if they examine their heart or knows that it's true yeah, yeah yeah and so um but you know what they'll say to you what they'll they'll try to debunk you by saying like well that's a generalization and it's like yeah i know it's a generalization like i'm speaking in general terms like generalizations are useful because they are generally true like that's, that's what this word that means saying. that that's like, a tool of libtards and a tool of academia to demonize generalizations and this goes back to uh what people what libtards find so objectionable at face value about Camille Pollyan. It's this didactic confidence that doesn't pause to give all of these qualifications where the higher you get up on the academic libtard ladder, the more kind of fake hedging qualifications to encompass all people you are expected to make. And those exceptions go without saying, um, the, the fact that there are exceptions to whatever you are saying should be inherent. Um, it's, it's just this process of decorum and politeness that libtards have constructed that dilutes the value of what you are saying. Because if you are not going into an, uh, an argument um, saying, well, I, I'm not intending to speak for everyone and this person and that person and that it weakens your argument and makes you look like a weak little idiot. That's the point of it. Um, so yeah, it, it's, uh, it's this sort of, uh, process of libtard decorum where they say, totally extreme violent unhinged things but it's in this sanctioned uh quiet repressed uh self-effacing tone and you can see this on the most basic sensory level by the difference between am talk radio and npr where npr is saying the most insane genocidal shit mm-hmm. all day every day uh, you know, the most racially inflammatory shit all day about, you know, the Pedro and Inez's pinata store that was closed down by white gentrification. Um, all of this, but it's in the most like dulcet, uh, just like the SNL parody with Alec Baldwin, the, the low pitched kind of feminine tone. And then AM talk radio 
is way less inflammatory, but it's loud, it's yelling, it's out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like they uh they just really um like women intuitively like generalizations, I think. Um you know, there's so many incidents where you know the e-girl starts saying something gender essentialist, not as like a base political performance, but because like women are interested in behavior and psychology and people and emotions and narratives, etc. And so like generalizing about people like and generalizing about men and women is like a very intuitive thing to them. Uh, you know, it's like, yeah. it's one of the insights that they're most adept at. I think that like uh, men are uh, from Mars, women are from Venus. You know, it's like, like men are very like it doesn't come naturally to us, especially as a straight. Like it doesn't come naturally to me. Like to uh, be very psychological and like kind of uh, understand like modes of understanding the world that are not uniquely male that don't have that autistic level about them. Um, but the and, whole the whole construction of misogyny like the construction of racism is designed so that there is no possible dissent it's just if you ever uh analyze or remark upon um a behavior that is readily apparent in that specific group of people then it can be canceled out by saying that it is misogynist or racist but those are constructions. They like, are not yes. real. And also, like, I'll be, you know, I uh, d- have, like, pretty radical difference, uh, opinions about the differences of epistemology between men and women. Um, like, I think it's a different, a type difference of seeing the world. I actually, like, I'm not really that misogynistic at the end of the day because I actually think that the female way of seeing the world has like a lot of merits it's like very unstable in terms of absolute truth but it's very um adept at like processing new information and using it pragmatically whereas like the male way of seeing the world is like very truth obsessed you know i'm a truth cell like i really do believe in like a stark literalism about things that actually happened facts about the world that are the way that they are etc but um you know recognizing that i think makes me more adept at like uh um talking to women etc i'm honestly not racist at the end of the day like um i uh basically think whatever like racial differences are innate are marginal in the grand scheme of things that's kind of my instinct like uh from talking to people but you know i have a few friends that are much more racist than me and to be honest they are the ones that are more adept at like talking to black people right the um as far as the woman stuff goes i think one of the primary difference differences in women and men is that women have this reptilian adaptability mm-hmm. they're like the xenomorphs and alien where they're constantly evolving i mean um, i believe you know um now that we're uh 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 two hours and 50 minutes in um and you know you can speak more freely like deeper into the podcast but like um, <laughs> i uh i believe like in my heart of hearts that like 
for women, the concept of objective truth does not come naturally. No, they, or they, objective they, morality. Yeah, they, like, they, they, they have a they, different morality than men. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to like shit on female morality because I do believe, you know, men and women mm. are created by God. Like they have like their merits, etc. It's different. Like, um, like it's you know, different. virgin. But yeah, it's like there's a type difference in the way that they process these things. And like the fact is like, oh, like a woman will understand a lot of things intuitively they have great intuition but like a woman will only understand the concept of an objective reality outside of anyone's perceptions in the same way that a man understands like advanced calculus equations yes it's like yeah he can get yes. it into his head like he's able to process that concept but it's never going to be second nature it's always going to be like multiple steps down the line of reasoning and like when a woman understands like reality in terms of like just like matter floating through space rather than like how you know she felt or how her friend felt or like what someone's saying about that situation like that is like always like an act of will because um you know women they'll always like uh you know if they're in a situation where two um equally high status men are like saying totally contradictory things where they're arguing about like different uh, a difference that is totally like formally irreconcilable their instinct is always going to be like oh well what if you're both right in different ways even if there's no like logical possibility for both of these opposite theses to it's be that true. maternal <laughs> equalizing instinct that they have but the the shape-shifting ability which is why they have longer lifespans than men and why they um, adapt in like subsistence conditions better than men and rapidly changing stuff like COVID. Like there was only one month where women objected to the mask and everything. And then they were totally on board with it because it's just how things are now because they <laughs> see themselves in this social constellation where men generally are cripplingly nostalgic and men are like emotional in a different way, like clinging to the past. They're not adaptable in the way that women are. Women will abandon their entire personality and all of their interests in order to be with a new guy that they see as a more suitable mate, more profitable mate. Men tend to stay the same and hold on to these kind of like aging, decrepit ideals in this kind of sad way um, i mean like i you know in my heart like i want to believe that like uh that women can be very absolutist about morals too because you know i'm a christian like i believe and i believe in like uh you know the immaculate conception of mary or whatever like i think that to be fully christian like there has to be some kind of symmetry in the way that like men and women process morality like not like they're not identical of course but like i guess like um i find it like even though i'll make like all manner of gender essentialist statements uh in terms of like how they process the world like i find it really hard to like just admit that women are morally flexible they, because i also think they can be absolutist in their own way as well and that like they're not um hmm, they privately rationalize things to themselves in a way that men do not be, which is in large part because they don't experience consequences for their really? behavior. I think in that the like the way. rationalization is like a function of like believing in objective truth. So that's like a male compulsion. So they, like, they think that like 
like I have known so many guys who were totally fucked over by a woman in the most like obvious and horrible way where they were the good party and the woman was the bad one. Guys do not tend to want to go public with that. They won't say anything bad about the woman. And they, nor should they, they, because like that's like that is like an effeminate like response. Like I think, right, that but women right to have will rationalize going public with anything. They will privately <laughs> rationalize it. They will they will think that it is justified if a guy ever pissed them off in some small way to enact the total ruination of his identity, his mm-hmm. public identity, to get him fired. To uh, you know. They they see that as justified. Men I mean, those are, are like the anomaly. Like not. though, most of the time they'll want to do it behind closed doors, but like still do violence to his reputation. Um, you oh, know, they like uh, doing it publicly. Now. I mean, Me Too is all about how they like doing <laughs> yeah. it publicly. But I still feel like for every hashtag Me Too incident, like there's like about like a hundred incidents of like you know a woman like bitching to her friends, and then you know if the opportunity ever arose to a hashtag Me Too a guy, like they might not even take it. Like they, you know, they're saving they, it for later. The the yeah. fundamental <laughs> difference in men and women is that women have these libraries of screenshots all this was chilling chilling to me upon realizing it where i was talking to you know one of the good one type women uh and they will casually reveal that they have a vast you know library of alexandria of like incriminating screenshots of every person they've ever talked to to be deployed at will and i mean i think that they do that because it's flattering because most of the time like the incriminating screenshots in some sense are uh, a vindication of them right like if they're being curved on that means that they're attractive like uh, oh you you are um you see them in a far sunnier light than i do i love women i worship them everything i do is about how i worship women but it's it's really funny like um when i i occasionally rise raise the ire of uh, a certain type of like right wing trad feminist or like a regular feminist or whatever. It's all about how I'm like jealous and misogynist of women. It, it, and uh, I merely wish to have a uterus so I can reproduce and have sex with the straight guys. And it's like, this is ridiculous and is so like base and dumb. I have fully accepted that i am biologically male that i am a genetic aberration a homosexual male um and that that there's a certain impossibility inherent in homosexual desire where you desire the straight man who can never love you back uh but they're always like like uh lifting up that like well even though i'm a run-through whore i have a uterus and i can provide a man with his trad fantasy and I, I, it's really because I understand women pretty well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why it's, they know it's true. Hmm. I mean, I feel like I have like a hard one knowledge of the finer sex. Um, but I will, you know, over the years, like I've never really stopped deluding myself. Uh, <laughs> um, and so uh, I don't know. I'm i don't have like a broad comprehensive solution the thing is like every straight like he is either um he's either like an expert male manipulator that has like a string of girlfriends that he's basically indifferent to and like treats like shit um 
but it, it comes very intuitively for him or like no matter how uh handsome he may be no matter how much he may fuck like he um still has like the incel instinct of like there's something that i want that i'm not getting from a woman mm -hmm. um and yeah that's like harrowing you know from my outsider perspective um it just seems like every straight man is satisfied with like the smallest crumb given to him like the, the you know <laughs> and this is this is something that you don't see unless you're a homosexual and have the homosexual eye is just the way that men are hated and degraded in straight society like just this visceral repulsion at the male body and the total worship of women, the most like mid, like six out of 10 type women heralded well, at, as just the great beauties. And then all, you know, I see all these just gorgeous, gorgeous nine, 10 guys who have like 300 followers and their selfies have like seven likes and no, <laughs> the straight world worships women. Well, have you uh, read uh, Scum Manifesto by Valerie Solanas? No, I've only seen, like, I shot Andy Warhol. And I well, I mean, it, I, uh, I just read it in an afternoon because I was at a friend's house and he had it on his coffee table. And it wasn't very good. Um, it, it's not a good book. Um, but the one thing, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, like, see the merit in it. And the one thing that I thought was interesting was the idea that, like, the... Um, the traits that men misogynistically associate with women are often like projection. They're actually like male characteristics that they're projecting onto women, like that they talk too much. Like, I think like, uh, you know, I'll own it. Like I talk too much, like straight men, like talk too much. Like that's a male trait. Like we're different. Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. And one of the male traits is like actually like being more outspoken and talking more. Um, I hate talking. I I find talking exhausting. Well, yeah, because you have a female brain. Like, but <laughs> <laughs> wait, this is the opposite of how I perceive it. I feel like women are constantly talking nonstop. Well, okay, they like straight chatter, men can kind of, like... or not just straight men because I'm not straight, but like men in general can kind of like chill and be silent women uh, chatter more i think but like um and uh, you know it's also different in like a homosocial context because i think like men are probably like more silent when they're with other men but like you know and they've done like you know uh social science studies on this where like uh the man talks through like 70 percent of the date on average or whatever and that actually lines up with my experience like um you know i know my own proclivity to like get on my high horse about like ideas that I'm interested in and you know women just like sit there impressed or whatever like um and oh my like God, so I hate talking to people I that makes intuitive I find sense it to totally me. exhausting like every time I have a conversation with anyone I feel I feel like I can see the like HP meter from the video game like and yet you're a podcaster yeah yeah I mean I like talking to people in that context because it's just kind of like organized sort of a performance thing and it has a level of artifice and i like theater i like acting i like all of that but like casually talking to people i find totally exhausting really i always feel like i just like want to go deeper like i want to greet the other and like penetrate their world um and I'm i think very that... guarded kind of like cold standoffish like 
I don't know. I'm so. But uh, I think that's a female mentality. Like, I really believe that women are cold and like standoffish, and men are like incredibly open and like outgoing. Men um, are really open. They'll just like, uh, they'll just like volunteer to help some total stranger with some complex they're the helpful problem. gender no and yes like, they're so sweet and this is why i worship and love men you know it's like uh, they they will just out of the goodness of their heart just, like puppy dogs just volunteer to fucking like help some stranger on the side of the road i mean like i guess like uh from you know if i try to like step outside of my like little like solipsistic perspective and like try to like empathize with like why women are terrified of men like why they're so guarded like i kind of understand it because i can almost get how there's something threatening about that level of helpfulness or how like even if the intentions are totally pure like the boundaries between like doing it out of the goodness of your heart and um doing it for like some kind of ulterior motive like you know in practice like actually are not that immense um i guess there's something threatening about the idea of like man is like the creature that goes through the world extracting value um to do great things does that make sense yeah i i like i think that like when i women are unsettled by men's natural generosity in everyday life because they view everything in a very cold and cynical transactional way like sex for them when they peel off all the layers of sex in the city media conditioning where they're you know trained to think that oh i actually want to get fucked with the butt just for fun or whatever <laughs> like it's it's coldly transactional and this is what they keep discovering over and over again in the form of like tradness or like conservatism well, or whatever it's like no, the, the, there's a very basic transaction happening where your self-worth is tied up to how much your pussy costs, but men just merely want the pussy for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, I guess the, um, the reason why I brought up that issue of projection is precisely this, that um, I... I think that Scum Manifesto might be onto something when Valerie Solanus is criticizing men for talking too much, for example, or um, uh, and she's like very savage about like gay men in particular as like the most effeminate and uh, or like as like embodying like all of these characteristics that she associates with like the male gender that are then projected onto women. But I think that cuts both ways because women are so, um, cruel or, (laughs) um, it's because women are so, um, they're always saying like, Oh, I can't find a man who wants to commit. And like, in my experience, like this is like the biggest chip on my shoulder is like, I've encountered so many women that just like want to use me for like my masculine essence that want to extract that sexual value and like Must none who want to have like a relationship. <laughs> no, but like that's Must the be thing. Hard like, being adored. <laughs> no, I mean it is because like I'm a relationship incel. I'm literally like what women are always complaining about being. But the, you're also literally like so young. You're like right out of like women haven't even had time to like realize that uh, there's only like 
uh, a good like 16 years where they can still have kids like they they change very rapidly when you i noticed the change around when i was like 26 27 where it's just like whoop yeah Every girl I know suddenly seems to have very different uh, viewpoints and priorities. Whereas before they were like, I just want to be a slut and get abortions. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, donate to Planned Parenthood. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't know. Like, I feel like incredibly like uh, uh, willing to like give myself to uh, uh, some kind of like serious relationship like that. But I always feel like the limiting factor is on the other side um, and that there's like this, uh, you know, and that they're very like uh, willing to put out for a hot broke guy. But <laughs> but like there's like this like deep endemic fear of like anything deeper than that. I'm just laughing because you're like a 23 year old who looks like a model. <laughs> you're, wor- you're worrying about <laughs> oh, all this thank bullshit. Thank you. Thank you. No, I mean in the long uh, term, so, like I'm not so, worried about it. It's so cute. I'm like, oh, a, well, I'm know, flattered. I'm, I'm like, turning 35 this year. I'm like the this aging decrepit. Like, I don't. You know, I don't feel like Barbara I mean, Streisand memories. Gay aging. I don't know. Like 35 doesn't feel that young to me. You know, like I have like good friends that are like in their early to mid thirties, but feel like that young to you. Yeah. It um, feel but that also like, I don't feel that young anymore myself. Like I um, still feel like I just finished high school. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's um, also, I still feel like I, I just finished high school and I'm like, you know, the devil wears Prada, like ingenue, like this is my little media career. When the reality is that I spent like, you know, 10 years just uh, being a fucking like concierge and like editing pornography and all of this <laughs> producing nothing i don't care i'm not uh-huh. <laughs> uh you know it's 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 whatever it's just something that happens with aging but um yeah you'll find that the girls just genetically change in a few years <laughs> okay yeah yeah i'm not too worried about it in the long term but um <laughs> but also i mean i've mostly been dating women like in their like late 20s to early 30s recently oh, their late 20s their early 30s okay um yeah that's... not not on purpose either like just like i can't chance. believe okay when i was when i was 24 it's like lady gaga born this way was playing and it was like you know just going to bars, <laughs> whatever uh still think he had complete a master's degree it's just the the telescoping of time here is incredible to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I mean, I was in middle school at the time of Lady Gaga, and I felt like it was some kind of like broad, like cultural, like transformation. I intuited it at the time. I was like, this is like, it feels like very fresh and like uh, liberatory. And like, yeah. um, you know, it's like, it's weird. It's unabashedly weird. And so I felt like the solidarity with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um yeah i guess like my view of that is very different now in that that weirdness was there all through the aughts it was just like the water that i was swimming in you know um yeah yeah it's actually more distinct and bizarre in its own way um the the (laughs) culture of the aughts but um also i just had a really uh embarrassing uh unprofessional moment um, where I realized my USB mic has been unplugged this entire time. I think that the audio from my laptop is probably like good enough. Like if I amplify it, um, are you but... recording the Zoom audio? No. 
Oh wait, you're not recording anything? No, no, I've been recording. Uh, um, I've been, do you feel? <laughs> do you hear the difference now? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I've been recording like uh, uh, from QuickTime the whole time. It's just that it's been picking up directly from my laptop receiver. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I think it'll, it'll, it'll be fine. It'll sound like something, but... Yeah, I, I think it'll be <laughs> fine. It's just like, oh, like, you know, I, I bought a fucking USB microphone for <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Like, it's lo-fi. I, like, I, uh, I, like, audio issues are, like, a perennial issue for me. Like, I'm, like, so technically inept, um, uh, it, and... You know, sometimes people will induce me to record in real life, as you know, and without fail, whenever I record in real life, I fuck up the audio because I don't know how to do like rig the setup or whatever. And like, you know, I'm just like very susceptible to peer pressure from women who are like, oh, I, you know, it would be really cute if we recorded in real life. I guess there's only one. Oh, and they don't right know now. how complex that is. Yeah. I mean, no, uh... honestly, like I, I can say the one person that, uh, you know, there's only been one woman that I recorded in real life with on this podcast and um, she actually does know what she's doing, but the no it's i'm kind of neurotically trained to monitor that it's recording in like three separate locations but mm -hmm. um yeah they'll always do the uh why don't we just record in person like uh, okay. <laughs> and i get I, it I guess, like I'm i think that real life is in that. person like, like i get why they recorder, want to you know yeah yeah, yeah. i get why they want to do that like it's my instinct is the same thing i'm like yeah like you know why would we communicate by like a very, very long number? Cause that's like what all online communication is. It's just like a very long number. Right. But in practice, like, oof, like it's a different, it's a totally different medium almost. It's just talking on the phone. Like yeah. it's, it's like my friend, uh, filthy Armenian said, everyone's like, all the podcasters are like gabbing with each other on the phone all weekend like it's the 50s, which is totally true. Um, and we started out as a remote show since we were in different cities and the only episodes where we were recording together were The Mall, uh, Clarissa, where we were in separate rooms, and Dallas and everything else has been remote um i know it's it's weird the only like kind of like in person like interview type uh episode that i've done is the second alex moyer one um oh really yeah the brown huh. bunny one um I don't know. I just, I just love retreating to the black void of the the phone call. I hate like uh, you know. Obviously, video serves a purpose, so you're not like talking over each other as much. But I find it just a total distraction, and I cannot stop thinking about my own image. So I like retreating. To yeah, the and void. I uh, I turn it off out of courtesy. Usually, I do leave it on to record. Um, and the reason for that, I've realized. Well, there it's twofold. Um, first of all, um, it makes it easier to, uh, flirt with like a female guest um, <laughs> if the occasion arises. Um, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> like, moreover, it's just, um, uh, well, you know, I like to let people know what I look like, uh, for reasons. Um, yeah, but for like, reasons. I, and yeah. also like, 
I, uh, <laughs> but I also like, I think that my sarcasm maybe might be a little bit too dry for many. And so like, it really helps to be able to lighten it with like the way that I look at them, even if it's, um, even if, uh, it's not going to make it into like the final product, like it puts them at ease in a way that they pick up on my humor. And so like, then the audience might be more uh, forgiving of like the harder edges of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but you know um, I, i'll I'm do really video if people it. want it i just I'm, hate it I'm and like, i do find it yeah the, i i find it very distracting uh, well it's like being a talking head on like the tucker carlson show or something you know yeah. <laughs> like, and it's like i, it's I, a I different don't medium. like it would be different if i were doing video with like a lighting team <laughs> you know i'm like mm. i i don't like the idea of just like everybody having to like record in their little like uh, barren apartments and bad lighting and that being the eternal document of this meeting you know right right i mean i like to be seen in general like even though i'm into podcasting because it is like a purely audio format. So I would never release a video feed Thank because God I'm like, so autistic. I'm so autistic about the oh, form. Shit. Like I'm so autistic about like, this is recorded sound. This is not film, you know, yeah. um, that's the appeal of it for me. But like in general, like, yeah, I like to be seen. I like to <laughs> make my appearance like known to the I world. like to be like, seen in person. <laughs> I like being on stage stuff like that i mean i you know really, it like, not minimize like i have to confess like i like being photographed too and like because i'm a man like i know it's like uh uncouth to like the pool of narcissists you, or to be like <laughs> to be like over eager like um but like yeah i like you know i want someone to like cast me in their movie you know I well want, that's like, good that uh, you realize that because most people wait too late like all the hollywood actresses they they like you know, refuse to do like nudity and stuff and are all standoffish and don't want to be photographed at the peak of their youth and beauty. And then they desperately <laughs> try to reclaim that when they're like 55 years old in some indie movie. And they're like, you know, it's finally Helen Hunt is nude. And, you know, they, they have to <laughs> be old to finally be comfortable doing that when the you're immortalized if you're like, you know, Nastasia Kinski and cat people or something where you're just photographed. Well, I mean, about... I'm very drawn to the ideal of like the movie star, like, um, as like a distinct thing from like an actor, like just the idea that, um, you know, being in a movie, it elevates bad acting to the level of the sublime. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Truly. Um, I mean, that's like what I think of Dasha, like, um, she's probably like a pretty shitty actor all things considered but like she has star power like she's magnetic she shines on the screen um and she's always done in a way that's quite enchanting which is like something yeah. that you don't even see in america whatsoever because all young actresses uh, feel like their nipples have this uh superstitious power where they can't expose them until they're old uh-huh yeah yeah i just uh i don't know like uh, something about the idea of like being photographed and being filmed, like I totally get how magical that yeah. is. Um, you know, you don't want to let like the best years of your life pass you by without that. Yeah, and you always think that you look shitty when you're young getting photographed. You only see the flaws, oh. and then 10 years later, you're like, oh my God, I was so thin. 
<laughs> like uh, maybe that's how that's yeah, how it happens I can't relate you know every time i see a picture of I, myself uh, from when i was like 22 and all i could see were the flaws and i was like oh my god i look like shit and now when i look at it i'm like wow i was a knockout <laughs> yeah i mean i i generally like i know when a bad picture of myself has been taken i feel like i'm like pretty candid about that but but yeah you know that's like something that like old uh old gay men are always saying is like you know oh like every picture where you're young is like a flattering picture of you like youth itself is like the beauty um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah which doesn't make any sense until you actually get older and see the passage of time you have like a physical majesty like um you know in pictures at least like you are photogenic in a way that's uh difficult to describe but like there's like a gravity to your physical presence i think uh yeah i've never had any shortage of confidence and i've never had any complaints but i do think that photography in general is uh bad for men and always makes them look worse than they do in person because a lot of the appeal with me is just the fact that I'm like so tall and such a like hulking figure and photographs mm. make you look small and it's just like your face, but whatever, you know, really, I feel like I actually am like more photogenic than I am like in real life attractive, but yeah, it's like celebrities, like women are typically like more attractive in photographs than they are in real life. But well, also like, you know, like, dasha to be honest like not that she there's anything wrong with her in real life but like she and she has this presence by virtue of her fame but like um she really like sparkles on the screen in a way that's very special yeah she um, does that you couldn't really get outside of that yeah she's indescribable and she also um has the star quality of shape-shifting where she looks different in every photo which all real stars have uh, like, Ma- yeah. like Madonna, yeah. where if the camera just uh-huh. adores you, you really look like a different person in different photos. And Dasha has that, where from oh, different yeah. angles, she looks like a totally different person. Mm-hmm. Wait, that's really interesting. I've never considered it that way before, but that's actually like quite a white pill. Hold on, I'll be right back. I'm going to grab the bottle of vodka. No worries. Well, one thing I wanted to mention earlier, um, which we didn't even get around to, but like um, one of the most interesting periods of the coronavirus, I think, was like March of 2021, because in New York, at least like you would um, I had this feeling walking down the street when the restriction like there was still like this state of double masking. But there was also like the restrictions had been lifted enough. The culture had changed so that you wouldn't be a total pariah for going out in the street without it. And I could walk down the sidewalk and immediately know where any one person would stand in the Soviet Union. 
Um, <laughs> like I could look at them, I would be like, oh, like the double maskers. No. Like they would be the true believers in the Soviet the Union. Total... They would be the people that like would sell you out to the Politburo because you have more cows than them. There is the people that were um, wearing one mask, and I'm like, okay, they're the normies. Like they don't like they're not agents. They just kind of like go along with the flow, which you know uh, is cowardly. But I understand where they're coming from, and I respect it. And then there are the people that are unmasked, and they're the people that are just like waiting for their opportunity to like show that they are not with it and uh it's, they'll do the absolute minimum to conform to the state and i knew how many people were willing to like defy like the state outright when the absolute minimum was still like complying with its every edict and i uh you know i was on one side of that and it was a very lonely uh existence but you see the solidarity when the restrictions start to loose and you understand who's really like sympathetic and you don't understand that dynamic until you actually experience it which has probably not happened to anyone to the degree of the last two years in two decades three decades um maybe way longer than that but everybody you know i talk about the spiritual libtard everyone who believed that what the Nazis were doing was wrong, but went along with it. All of those people were spiritual libtards. Soviet Union, same thing. You see this kind of conformity and you see how it operates where it's not just a matter of, okay, this is one guy standing up for what he believes in. The tactic they use is that you're hurting everyone else with your outspokenness. <laughs> you're hurting yeah. everyone else. It, despite what you believe and what we all believe, you are bringing chaos unto all of our families. Us, the Anons, the, the meek little Anons. And <laughs> it is it's so selfish and unbelievable for you to... Uh, do this so that's how that kind of terror actually operates and just like the soviet kind of stuff uh, and the current cancel culture landscape what they do is they don't when it really matters they don't go after you they go after everyone else and make everyone else scared of collaborating with you you know Mm -hmm. So, like, if you're, like, a strong-willed personality who says whatever, like, and can't be defeated, that's that's one thing, and it's more difficult for them to take down. But if they make everyone else scared of touching you, then it's worked. Well, are you familiar with uh, Rhinoceros by Eugene Ionesco? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a play. It's, like, a theater of the absurd play, Um, and... um, it's like a very uh, on the nose kind of like political statement, but I have a soft spot for it, even even though it's kind of like libtarded in its way. Um, but like it's uh, an allegory for the rise of Nazism and also like a kind of critique of uh, uh, communism at the same time. Like Ionesco, he is like a true like Romanian like liberal, and um, the premise is like there's this uh, French town, and in this town. Uh, you know, one day people start spontaneously turning into rhinoceroses. They opt into like being becoming a rhinoceros, 
and everyone's like well that's an absurd thing to do who are these freaks and then like slowly like more and more people start to do it and then it becomes like this mass conformity thing where the people that don't uh opt into becoming a rhinoceros that don't like uh succumb to this temptation uh well there's really only one guy left by the end who uh holds out against it and um and he's just like some like alcoholic like uh, uh unemployed loser um that everyone like scoffed at at first and in the end he's the only man left standing in a world of rhinoceroses and he's like i have to fight this um but you know that always like uh, uh spoke to me and like it's something that libtards have like rehabilitated in like the era of trump and they're just like wow this really like speaks to what it's like to see like your family fall into mass because illusion. low iq um, individuals and, uh, can't understand like they still operate under this ridiculous delusion that being a liberal you are encountering resistance of any kind anywhere in american society you know yeah to be fair like uh i think that they might be interpreting it correctly in the sense that like um like what they're picking up on is like what trump is doing is um transgressive and radical and wouldn't have been accepted like uh years ago um and you know that's like the main appeal of it but it's also like you you can't like uh you know sit by and be like how could people be scandalized by him like the scandal is like the appeal like that's why he's good like yeah, um, he came at you a know, particular it, it, time and just completely did not buy into the premises of uh cloistered liberal ninny culture with its rules and that's the entirety of his appeal and also like, his um, unprecedented uh, mapping out of how the liberal media operates uh, and fake news yeah. and all of this, which most people did not really know. They thought, I think pre-Trump, most people thought that journalism was a profession as depicted in Hollywood movies where you're like, some good person who wants to pursue the truth in the face of like this massive uh, power that's preventing you from telling the truth and what journalism actually is is what's depicted in the fountainhead which is a mm-hmm. uh, tentacled um shape-shifting hp lovecraft uh communist abomination that works as a shadowy force behind everything that everyone does and no one takes the threat seriously enough no one really realizes how evil the media is until they themselves are forced to become red-pilled which is a pain yeah and like my mom you know i get it like um i get like you you know i i don't act surprised at the fact that like my gen x mom for example is like uh, scandalized by trump because like he's polarizing by design like that's the point um i never and, even know, found like, him polar- i could never even conceive of how anyone could dislike him that's how crazy you know quote unquote <laughs> crazy i am is that i can't conceive of the mind that would not like him because he's just so powerful. Well, he's very cool. brash and aggressive. Like, uh, yeah, but that's, and that's how what I've makes always cool. been. And that's how people have always uh. demonized me. You know, it's like <laughs> people have always demonized me for being exactly like that. And so I 
psychologically cannot understand the mind that's just like I well, wish I think he would that, shut like, up. Well, I think that like the normie of like an older generation, like the Gen Xer, like the boomer that's uh, against him, for example. Like, um, I think that uh, I mean I'm pro boomer. Like, I'm I, pro -boomer. I think that I'm I, re I, I relate. And I'm a I relate to the boomers a lot because I'm I'm like uh, anti millennial, and I think I'm like I'm anti millennial, anti Gen <laughs> X, pro boomer, pro zoomer. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I think that that's the correct the take. Millennials of like my age middle. are literally, it's just like the Handmaid's Tale or like the Crucible where it's just like my my perception of everyone my age is just the Crucible where it's like goody, you know, goody so-and-so. Like, like the propaganda worked yeah. on them so, so much that they're just like these Puritan scolds. Yeah, there are like few things that are more grating to me than like the archetypal millennial personality. Oh, no. And like, I'm like, I'm like basically like the one of like the earliest zoomers. I I think I'm probably like the probably like last year that could be considered borderline maybe, but like technically in the zoomer camp. But honestly, like I can't watch TikTok for more than a few I hours without like I mean, I mean for more right. for more than a few seconds without wanting to gouge my eyes out. Whereas my brother is like a natural at it. My my brother is like he used to be like famous on conservative TikTok. You would love him. Like he uh he's just like <laughs> he's like a very like normie conservative like uh like red meat eating like a uh, middle American guy who makes like Biden cringe videos. He sounds pretty. Like... <laughs> yeah, I know. I think he would be very much uh, to your taste. Um, and he... <laughs> um, but you know, he, he's a, uh, we have a difference in mentality. I mean, I guess like the irony of it is like, I'm like the weird, like edgelord, like alt-right, like, uh, 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 you know ideologue whereas he's just like oh i just love the constitution man but he like does it in the form of these tiktok videos and like he's really good at it and he like had like a uh a stint where he was like really like going viral on tiktok a lot and then he kind of like lost interest in it and i think he burned out but um <laughs> oh. but like that, that uh you know the like even though i am basically a millennial like when someone says spongebob squarepants i think about like the really good episodes from the first three seasons. I don't think about like this late crap, like, um, and you know, I don't watch TikTok. I'm not as naturally adept at the internet as my brother, who's only three years younger. Um, but with that said, like there are a few things that I despise more than like the millennial as like a type. Um, they're extremely grating and unpleasant and, um, dysfunctional and like, just like the mo the greatest disaster of a generation. You I've say really that, an and there's this general X. hatred of millennials, but there's this unspoken thing going on where all the podcasts who like uh, really change the game and really influence people, they're like older. So, like Anna, yeah, is I mean, no, 36. but that's like natural, like like but all, like, all but the, the Anna imitators like, are like twenty two. You know? No, but with any like counterculture or whatever, like with any like uh, cultural moment, like it's going to be led by people that are somewhat but older than people that are adherent to it. But it's that perspective of having lived like ten plus years as like a service industry failure or whatever, like that kind of like disenchantment, I think, has really informed this generation of kind of like aging millennial tastemakers. You know what I'm saying? 
I mean, like most of my friends are millennial at the end of the day. So, you know, when I uh, rail against the type, like, uh, you know, it's not personal, but. <laughs> I mean, but, like, I'm the same way with like Gen Xers. I'm so, I'm friends with so many Gen Xers and I'm like, uh, in terms of like timeline, like half Gen X because I have a brother five years older than me and a sister eight years older than me. Um, and so I absorbed a lot of that, but I see the way that jet, like the tropes of Gen X are so fucking annoying where the belief, the like entitled belief in like Christian suburbia as some omnipresent, (laughs) which is something that was never real, by the way, it was never like, a lot of like kind of Bernie Sanders like uh, jilted failed podcaster leftists try to be like evangelicals in the eighties and nineties had this cultural power. That was never true, and it was always trumped up by the libtard media. Uh, evangelicals have never had almost any cultural power. Like a immediate- yeah, it was never cool to be evangelical. No, no, there was ne- it never anything to the degree of the power that the the fucking iron claw of democrat liberals on media has had forever but gen xers still live in this like wishy-washy world where they're still in their early 20s and like in a late 90s early 2000s and it's just like this like ck calvin klein ck1 uh multiracial street (laughs) scene where everybody's just like different races but getting along and fighting when they feel like it and it like well i mean i think that like uh like my mom is like like my parents are both gen xers and like um i think that they're fairly agreeable like you know there's not like many like generational like your parents traits that i uh yeah okay yeah my parents my parents are like in their early 50s thank you um (laughs) (laughs) i was was about to to kill myself on the air if I know, I like, I mean, no, no, no. I mean, like, I guess it's like theoretically possible (laughs) if I had like, like a teen mom, like a young teen mom, like that doesn't have any more. Like, white people are on birth control until thirty-eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, no. Like my parents, they're in their early fifties, and like, there's nothing about their generation really that I'm just like. Oh, this is so grating. Like this is like nails on a chalkboard. But I get it. Like there are like these epistemic blocks where, um, you know, their ability to conceive of like who the antagonist is is like very um, grounded in like twenty years ago. Um, you know, like you know, like my and like my mom, like you know, she doesn't like Trump. Like, and I don't fault her for that because, like, even though I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Like he's like, you know, attacking all the right people. Like her like way of like thinking about who the right people to attack are, who the people who deserve it are is like kind of like, you know, uh, stuck in the nineties. I don't want to say anything pejorative about, I I don't want to say anything pejorative about my mom. Like, uh, you know, she's very, the boomers have their failures in the same way. Like I worship my parents. I have a, you know, really good relationship with my parents, which, you know, my entire podcast is about how I worship my mother. essentially. (laughs) But, but, uh, (laughs) boomers um even no matter how based they are and you know how much baseness and red-pilledness you see in what they do there's a fundamental 
error there where they still think that the media is real. Um, like, so (laughs) they're like intuitive people. Yeah. So they came from an era where like what you saw on the TV was like kind of real generally, um, up until the last Mm -hmm. 10, 20 years. And there was always libtard bias. Like Watergate is bullshit. Like, you know, Mm-hmm. libtard bias at that time you know the whole bias against nixon was totally dumb nixon did nothing wrong um mm-hmm. but in regards to covid boomers can't reject the entire premise because of their age because they're worried about dying but i feel like boomers are like better they're better calibrated to the internet they've actually like assimilated to the internet better than gen xers and like they're more I think that thoroughly too. like po- i think that too they're more thoroughly like postmodern in their out gen xers um, are <laughs> stuck in their world of like sonic youth uh you know like nirvana what they're stuck in this weird nether world where they're like the simpsons family where they're like i'm just from suburbia and like they they've had all these images of like terrorizing evangelicals on tv fed to them through movies um and they think in terms of like slam poetry and like dreadlocks and like multiracial ck1 ads and it's really sad. That's really sad. Well, like, um, you know, every uh, Gen Xer I know, like, uh, on, you know, they kind of like just like listen to like the same thirty songs from like nineteen eighty two to nineteen ninety nine. Um, but like, and they like, I just feel like they're trying to like meme them into like the same like level of cultural relevance that the Boomers had, and it's because like they're self conscious about the fact that their transgression was never going to be as radical or transformative because like uh you know the act of transgressing itself had become like a feature of the dominant culture and boomers actually had authoritarian parents to rebel against like yeah like my dad who you know was born in 1955 he it was a genuinely transgressive act when he like secretly bought the black sabbath album and played and like led, <laughs> led zeppelin in like 1970 like and his his mom would not let let him have his own record player and his own speakers and that was a genuine like psychedelic revelatory moment for him but gen xers they have they have this kind of permissiveness of their boomer parents uh where it's just sort of formed into this like bratty daria blob where they're over everything they're cynical but they're also really entitled because they're benefiting from the permissive cultural climate of 20 years ago where now mm-hmm. no one has that kind of permissiveness in anything that they do we're in such a like buttoned up terrible era yeah, and, like, when you see, like, a Gen Xer, like, actually, like, forced to engage with a gender goblin for the first time in their life, like, it's actually, like, it, it's, like, it, it approaches, like, the sublime, like, it, like it's terrifying to them, and, like, they do not know, but it's, like, the, a total, like, uh, world-changing the event. The one um, instance <laughs> where I think it's sweet when, like, an older person 
engages with like a transgender person is Queen Caitlyn Jenner, who is outside <laughs> who's outside the transgender industrial complex for me is like a separate being. But like mm-hmm. my boomer parents grew up with Bruce Jenner and I remember when transgenderism was being launched in like twenty fourteen after gay marriage was legalized, so libtards needed a new minority. Um, and Caitlyn Jenner was their new figurehead and it was a big story. Bruce Jenner, who was weird and eccentric on the lines of Howard Hughes or whatnot, um, Mm -hmm. was going to reveal that he was transgender. And there was the 60 minutes episode where he explained it all, how, how he'd always felt like a woman. And like, my dad was really sympathetic and uh my dad was like oh i can totally understand all of that my dad who um was very understanding when i was like 14 and 15 he found like gay porn on the computer and didn't tell my mom for a long time my mom was like took the opposite tact where she was like well it's gross that he didn't tell his wife for so long that he felt this way um Wait, you were married? What? Oh, oh, you mean um, <laughs> Caitlyn Jenner? I'm talking okay. about Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm no, just I going just... off. Um, but yeah, but, no, like, I get there, it. I, I understand what you're saying of, now. Like, cute uh, <laughs> boomer like sympathy for Caitlyn Jenner just because they like grew up with Bruce Jenner. Um, really, that was not like my uh, uh, experience of like boomer Gen Xers at all. Like, I feel like uh, everyone that I knew, like when they talk about it, like they they just treat it as like a weird like reality TV arc, and they just like have like this inherent suspicion of it. They're just like, oh, this is like a wacky news subplot on Keeping Up with the meanwhile, Kardashians. Meanwhile, every like <laughs> you know bullshit. <laughs> 22 year old who decides they're non-binary and tiktok is like authentic no like like uh (laughs) caitlin jenner i love because you know number one he's just a rich white republican male on a golf course that they can never take that from um and number two he's from an older generation where uh transgender's kind of realize the perversion of what they were doing where it was just like put you know being naughty and putting on women's clothing and there seems to be a certain amount of exhibitionism in what you're doing rather than this uh medicalized uh false self-effacing kind of pipeline that people are put into now um so well, i, I think love that Caitlyn um Jenner. <laughs> My reading is that, like, Caitlyn Jenner is actually, like, more or less, like, very, like, psychologically continuous with um, the autogynophiles of today. Um, And that, like, I think, like, autogynophilia, it's, like, the final frontier of toxic masculinity. Yeah, totally. Um, And that, like, like, basically, like, everyone I know that, like, transitioned, like, in adulthood um, was actually, like, a really, like uh like fairly handsome or athletic or like high status male who like fucked like 
a fair amount probably because of their like childhood sexual trauma um (laughs) and like you know the last thing for them to do once they've like uh the last mountain left to climb is to like conquer womanhood in this very male way um uh and so i feel like that's how i read like caitlin jenner too i'm like well this is like you know like bruce jenner was like the man on the wheaties box like he was the like uh, uh giga chat of the day you know um or just like the uh the perfect like vertruvian man um and you know in old age like seeking like ever higher ecstasy of like maleness like he decided like the most natural thing was to become a woman that this was like the last like uh uh, uh but it was also uh, he he was a continent. he was a perverted transvestite in the 80s and 90s like that's the thing like he's an old school tr- perverted transvestite and i think he <laughs> understands that on some level because he's a boomer and has boomer brain and but paradoxically he's one of the only transgenders that I believe is spiritually a woman. Like when I look at Caitlyn mm. Jenner, I think nothing but utmost femininity. <laughs> you know, like like even really? though he's this like six four man hulking with these huge hands, I adore. <laughs> I adore her. Like I. You're uh, the ultimate woman. This like, might be, I, I, uh, maybe you're, you're you might like be tapping into old. like a kind of like homosexual psychology that's like out of my purview. Like I feel like uh, I I may not get it. But, uh, no, um, it's, it's um, I mean, it's an ongoing plot line. It's been going on for like because like when I see like Caitlyn Jenner, like I see a Chad that like took the logical next step. But that that's um, a big part of the autogonophilia thing because. Okay, here's the, you know, like the TLDR breakdown of autogynophilia. Um, If you're one of the transgenders who is not just like a gay guy who wants to become a bimbo Barbie woman like Amanda Lepore, you are a straight man who through some kind of psychological fissure as depicted in the Alfred Hitchcock movie Psycho, um decides that you are actually a woman so there was so much pressure on the modern day male incel um male sexuality is so demonized it's depicted as white male colonialism and rape all this stuff and if you buy into any of the libtard media industrial complex you learn that there is no way out of that, that all male sexuality is bad and evil and responsible for everything bad in the world. So being on the computer, being an incel who is on the computer, probably a fat, chubby little fucking male with B.O. who's drinking Dr. Pepper and Mountain Dew all day, you become radicalized through the forums about transgenderism that you see, where you suddenly have a sexual outlet um, where you can express yourself fully as a woman. Your name is Jake, but... Once you're Amanda, you can say anything you want. And those well, job you know, offers start pouring in. So, <laughs> But, you know, um, I think that um, when you said earlier that 
uh, being a BAP guy is like doing drag as your own gender. That's actually very profound because most of the autogynophiles I know were like basically like gym cells, um, like really like strong, like, uh, like publicly sexual people. Um, I mean, in many ways, like, uh, there are people that I relate to as well. Like, um, you know, not that I, not that I'm like that jacked or anything like, but like, you know, I feel like I'm basically fit, like, and I probably do like put out like a fairly like sexual persona on the internet. And like, you know, I actually feel like when I see someone it's like Cindy uh, Crawford being like, I just, you know, I, I can't, I don't know if I project like a sexual image, but I'm basically, I'm just kidding. You know, you're very <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're I, very attractive. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And like, um, you're a model. You I look like a model. I, I love, I love my fans and I would love to be, uh, you know, if any listeners are, uh, that's of course a big that, part of uh, the community. appeal of like listening to you talk for a million hours is that you're um, an attractive guy. Okay. Yeah. Just yeah. like the appeal, <laughs> well, appeal thank you. of red scares that they're flattered. like attractive girls. Like if people know what you look <laughs> like and they're hot, it helps. Right. You know? Right. No, I mean, I feel like most of my followers don't even know what I look because like the, because the I the don't heterosexual like, gaze. Okay. You know, the, the heterosexual <laughs> gaze that hates men. Uh, they only like girls. But, um, yeah, but even even if it's a YouTube thumbnail, though, like uh, people will generally like click on a YouTube thumbnail with an attractive man. I feel like much more likely than like a generic YouTube thumbnail. But um, but like, look, my point is like I actually relate to like the uh, type that I identify with, like future autogynophiles, where um, you look back on their old posts and they're like always going to the gym. They're like very sexual and like as sexual as a man be can be in his public persona you know um like he can't like post like thirst traps or whatever that's not a thing that men do like you Unless can post like a shirtless is over your face as bap your you know little like dictator that's not even like that i mean dictates. look i mean maybe that's because i'm a straight but like i genuinely like feel like grossed out whenever i see one of those physique pictures that has like an emoji i mean i feel like, like disgusted because it's so unnecessary everybody could just not be an anonymous hold on I, <laughs> i've got to pee really bad i'll, I'll okay yeah, right yeah sure back. we can keep going no worries Yeah, so you 
我要等你回来，还不回来，春光不再，还不回来，热泪满I'm here. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the. Yeah. I uh, I don't know if you're still going strong. <laughs> um, we can, we, um, we can but, uh, whenever, but yeah, I can still go. Okay, no, I uh, there's like two more topics I wanted to touch on, but I don't know if this is getting absurd at this point. Um, um, I don't care. I can I can go as long as you want. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess we'll finish what we were on, which I guess the point that I was trying to draw to is a little vague to me right now. But um, the autogynophile like toxic masculinity question. Um, uh huh. But no, I, I guess what I was saying was that um, your uh, diagnosis that uh, being a BAP guy is like doing drag as your own gender is very acute because um, I honestly think that many uh, autogynophiles or, you know, if we want to be more politically correct, uh, five hours in, like uh, uh, type B transsexuals, um, <laughs> you know, they... <laughs> Are they type they, uh, B? Uh, uh, the gay ones are type A. Or what is it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, which that model, like, it basically lines up with everyone I know. Like, um, <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, Blanchard's typology, like, that lines up with everyone I know. But like, most of the type Bs, like, they were maybe not like outright like BAP guys, but they were like something adjacent to BAP guys and that they were really interested in like self-improvement and stuff, which is good. Like I, I, like I'm very uncynical about like the right wing improver culture where, you know, it's just I'm like, Oh, I like stopped masturbating. It. Yeah. Really? I seen I, it for miss, many years. I, I, a, and seen its transformations know, like, for many years. I'm, I'm uh, quite a bit cynical about it. <laughs> like if you just like take, like a nerd who's like and then make him jacked um it, it, like he gets like really into like going to the gym and reading old books and, okay like, that's great maxing, but that's not what like, explicitly happens like at, at face like, value masturbating like that that's not really what happens like 
Like I love eternally bronze age mindset. I think it's a great book. Mm -hmm. I loved it, but Mm -hmm. I find BAP's personal behavior reprehensible. Um, I think he acts Mm -hmm. like a diva. I think he orders his followers around like, like a little fucking army. Um, I think that he really resents anyone who is not anonymous because even after he was doxxed, so much of his, like, mystique is preserved by this idea of anonymity. I mean, his dox made him cooler, like, because, like, you see him and he looks like a a lost generation He looks fine, but he deals with it. No, he doesn't look fine, like, he looks good, like. (laughs) He doesn't deal with it well because he still commands that everyone must be anonymous, that all the frogs um, can only accomplish what they want to do if they're anonymous because it will open up i mean i think you said that like face fags like they have their use like uh but face fags um, succeed yeah. in a way that bap cannot because he doesn't yeah, own yeah. up to it I get because it. uh whatever uh you know insecurities he has about being some kind of like ivy league eternal graduate student funded by israelis uh you know it's uh-huh it's lame yeah, I mean, that he yeah, can just like, own up to what he is and he specifically like like when i came online in 2019 uh he was one of my earliest biggest supporters and he like retweeted all of my shit and there was he had this like what i'll call a quintessential gay vibe uh, like no one else did at that time. Everyone was totally humorous, humorless on alt-right Twitter at that time, um, to the degree that you couldn't talk about movies as an art form without someone scolding you and telling you... That <laughs> For your Jewish, Jewish degeneracy. degeneracy. <laughs> so that was the landscape. Uh, and nobody talked about Palia. Bab was one of the early... Proponents of Polya. He mentions her somewhat negatively in the book, but there's that passage in the book talking about homosexuality, which is at face value. Um, it can be read as negative and critical of homosexuals, but it is also um, very sympathetic and sounds like something from someone who has experienced it themselves there was just no question in my head that he was like repressed homosexual um yeah i mean you know aside from like the cultural diagnosis of bap like i just like like the idea of like uh uh, turning to things that are more vital like more physical more uh, edifying like wormhole where you don't know how to get out because of this emphasis on anonymity and well, I mean, like, uh, you know, I even have, like, a soft spot for Solbra, even though he's, like, a totally artless version of Bat. All the Bat like, people um... have hated me for years, so I don't even know, like, <laughs> I know uh-huh. you mention him a lot, but all the Bat people have hated me for a long time, where they were initially big supporters, you know? Uh-huh. 
Yeah, I mean, I I can never really, like, because they haven't created anything other than Bronze Age mindset. Like, they haven't really created anything of lasting value. And, like, uh, well, I mean, I subscribe to Bronze Age Pervert's Telegram channel, um, but I almost never check it. It's just, like, another annoying notification. Um, you know, if he publishes another full-length book, I'll read it. But, like, you know, my, my dude, you have to, like, get out of, like, this, like, super online mindset because, like, Bronze Age mindset, you know, as good as it is, it's, like, totally ephemeral. It's, like, totally, like... Um, um, grounded in a particular historical moment and there's no world in which like 20 years from now like you uh you know using like uh all these like like internet lingos and like talking about posting with an a like that that doesn't read as a little cringe the, and that's the okay. importance like, you know, of bronze age like, mindset the is that he self-published it as a physical object at a particular time which was 2017 mm -hmm. i guess um yeah. and its importance as a physical object cannot be understated and also the general climate of the dissident right alt-right whatever you want to call it at that time was so unyielding and humorless and unforgiving that he was like this oasis of of humor, of of libidinal homoeroticism, all this stuff, and now he is this uh, baby Jane, uh, decaying st former star <laughs> with the he's like makeup, uh, you know Sunset Boulevard, like, uh, and that's uh, Sunset Boulevard, yeah, yeah. And, like my falling out with him happened because of Catbot because. Because at the time, I, w I was close friends with Canbot, and things were really fun in that, like, um, period of early 2020, and um, Babs started going yeah, after like Canbot, they started going after each other, and it's the simple fact of loyalty, like, I, w I was friends with Canbot better friends with yeah and like you know to, like it, he makes it hard to love him but like at the end of the day like these people are gratuitously cruel to him in a way that i find the bad people were gratuitously justify. cruel to Cantbot in a way that i found disgusting and even though i right. had my own, you know obviously had my own yeah, falling yeah. out with him and he he went crazy and went after everyone who was everyone hates Cantbot, but i understand why Cantbot. <laughs> was a thing um and tech wars was one of the really early highly influential podcasts in the sphere where people tech people, wars was good. people like, were even, still like, haters, scared like... of like voice doxing at that point like it was a big deal that he did that yeah i mean he found like he cracked the code like he became cool in a way like he became a movie star without being fit without being like uh conventionally glamorous and you know i'm not saying that in any like uh uh you know ironic or uh kind of like backhanded way like i'm genuinely impressed by it and when i watched like tfw no gf for the first time i was just like man he's like a but, bro uh, like but also <laughs> and that was before the fall Kentbot, um you know i hate the shit people say about his appearance um, and uh -huh. that was a big factor in the kind of schism from BAP back in the day. But, uh, like, regardless of what you say about him, he has this beauty. He has this striking, like, historical, timeless beauty where he looks like an illustration on a penguin paperback of an author from yeah. 200 years ago you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah 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 he, he, like 
he's a notable personality and uh uh-huh. yeah and i i'm <laughs> sad that all happened but uh, you know bap is whatever happened to bappy jane you know he's he's fucking like he's baby jane to me now you know yeah i mean i find it hard to view him as anything but the aggressor and the antagonist in that situation even though on principle like i probably like agree with him more but you know you know enough with like the the internet he's he's a really uniquely nasty kind of faggot online (laughs) like um i got in i got into it with him like but most of the like look like he's like high iq like most of like the right-wing self-improvement culture is not like people like him with like this kind of like artistic impulse like i feel like it's much more innocent like uh i used to browse like r slash clean living kings um which i thought was really (laughs) endearing um because like they're just like they, they just like make these posts they make these posts that are just like I made it to day five of no fab. Oh I am the warrior. The warrior lives within me. And like, and it's like, it's so really easy uh, to make fun sincere. of how straight men have to have all this like infrastructure informing <laughs> them that they need to like clean their apartments and like hang a, yeah. hang a poster or something to make it like more welcoming. Like this is basic, like woman brain kind of decorating interior interior decorator uh-huh. kind of stuff but like um the whole like um male self-improvement thing which i obviously sympathize with it has to has to put it in these like baby like kindergarten kind of terms um well and, and i feel like it's almost like the opposite in that it has to like make it sound like the iliad when you don't masturbate fake. for three days also, like <laughs> also it's all like the whole bath thing is totally fake because any actual chad any real chad is not on social media they are busy mm-hmm. driving a jeep driving a four-wheeler fucking bitches that it would never like the actual chad is the guy who started an instagram account in like 2012 because of a girlfriend and posted one picture of a fish and hasn't thought about it since (laughs) but like what we see in our sphere uh is all of these kind of like nerd guys who are self-actualizing and larping as chads after they start weightlifting um and they were all like so the- playing like you know video games before that um and they're all usually skinny and cute like they're the type of guys who were just eating tendies and ketchup that mom gave them uh before this but then they go online and they pretend with the permission of bap and his like emoji over their face that they were always chads and it's like no you're not a chad or a stacy if you're actually on but the reason why i brought this up and the reason why i wanted to highlight like the uh agp uh uh bronze bap connection is um that like in a very real sense, like you have like a different sense of yourself if you feel like you're self-made. If you if you weren't like a jock in high school, but you get jacked as an adult, 
as like this countercultural right. gesture. <laughs> like, um, and like, I kind of relate to that. Like I said, like, I'm not like that, like, uh, uh like, you know, you were, a yeah, I'm like thin and I got a lot stronger, um, uh, in the you last skinny few years. And you cut your hair, which is like the kind of transformation that like Anne Hathaway in movies, you know, <laughs> like the princess diaries, like, like yeah, she's yeah. wearing glasses um, but, and she takes the glasses off and they cut her hair. That's the kind of transformation you underwent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I get it. Like, but, but you know, like, um, no, but I was like newly armed and like, uh, well, I was like the kid, like in, uh, elementary school T-ball that I would literally like go to the porta potty and just like sit there because I hated like doing I athletics was the kid, much. I, like the, the day my like, I was like signed a, me up for T-ball in kindergarten or, you know, like when I was five or six, I <clears> cried <throat> until they came to pick me up. That's how much I hated. Oh sports. yeah. Like I, um, you know, and I like, uh, I left, uh, baseball in elementary school because I had like a crying fit, like during a game, like I like suffered because through it for like about traumatic. like two years. It's... And well, I mean, I like, honestly, like most of the boys on my team, like they could get with it. Like they either could like figure out a way to goof off to entertain themselves or they actually got like unironically into athletics and um i was like so unimpressed with like uh booter or um donovan at the time like i liked them as guys like they were friend they were always nice to me but like i never really was impressed by like their athletic prodigy i didn't even recognize until later like what it meant for them to be adored like for oh, being like so good I at wish baseball I had stayed but in uh football because i could be a millionaire football player because of my physique <laughs> but i you know stupidly only did football for seventh and eighth grade where i felt pressured to do it and i hated it it was a total struggle i liked the hot guys i liked the sense of like male camaraderie uh, but I was like an art fag and I was like, I just want to quit the stupid sports to talk about. Movies. Yeah. And that's what I did when I was, uh, I was in the swim team, uh, from sixth to seventh or actually from like fourth to seventh grade. That was, uh, my mom's cope after I like had a crying fit and had to leave baseball. <laughs> but, um, but no, like my point in bringing this all up is like, you know, y- y- you may say like I've always been thin, which is true. Like, uh, it, being thin, like, being thin uh, you know, the <laughs> but um well the jufro was like genuinely disturbing in the middle school years like nobody gave me credit because for of, that like, like every... the rings and like peter jackson like uh, every, no 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 every of those jufros out in the 2000s because of Lord no of i was the only one i was the only one i knew and like people like it was always the like this garfunkel where it's not cute <laughs> you know like... no no yeah exactly i was like the art garfunkel in like seventh We're grade like, and, um, and like everyone thought it was like this wacky thing and i'm like why is it that like all of my peers have girlfriends and <laughs> meanwhile when i talk to them they act like i just like spit on them like <laughs> but um it took You're me like a couple scribbles. of years to like You're figure that out Anne hathaway princess diaries where you had a jufro <laughs> you were always thin but you had a jufro and you moved to new york and you cut it off and then you became a fashion model like 
Fuck this shit. <laughs> Fuck this. Okay, sorry, sorry. I don't I don't wanna uh you know, I don't wanna like uh it's a fucking you know, she's all that kind of like uh, she takes off. I'm trying her to glasses. like check my all right, I'll try to like check my privilege, but check like your look, like privilege, the end of the day. Nick, okay. I, I was like a pasty kid, like I never got any attention from girls in like middle so school at least. And then you cut your hair off. Yeah, and then lo and lo and behold, you know, it, it worked. But <laughs> but look, the whole point is like, um, you know, when you actually like become like fit and like you actually like aspire to like greater heights of like uh attractiveness than necessarily comes naturally to you. Because at the end of the day, like even though I've never like been like ugly per se except insofar as i took an ugly hairstyle like as a young man <laughs> which, will, um, which will disfigure anyone you know yeah yeah and uh, you know i got like my mom never let me like uh hear the end of it she's like why are you so ugly with that hair you would be so handsome if you cut yeah, your hair and as I'm a like, teen well, you're like this is my this is represents everything i'm all about is this hair yeah yeah but um you know it's like um that's like i do feel like self-made in a way that i think like an autogynophile would feel self-made too <laughs> and that like like the word like masculinity like it didn't mean anything to me until i opted into it and then like and like in my mind like i do feel like very satisfied with my masculinity but that's like an act of will i feel like, satisfied that was... with my masculinity too like it's been like uh, it hasn't even been a long process. Like there was just never any question. <laughs> like my form, uh -huh. my particular form of gayness is that I just have always emotionally and sexually worshipped men, almost all men, and loved them all, and wanted to fuck them in the ass and blow them, and that's basically the extent. And wanting their approval. And that's basically the extent of it. But I've never gotten any, like, flack about, like, the way that I look, like, until I came online. And it could be scrutinized in the form of, like, photographs. Because um, I'm just, like, a big guy. Like, they, they, like, there was a certain category of, like, a big guy that people put you in. Uh, where I don't look morbidly obese. I don't look obese. I don't look like a fat person, like in the way of like Baron Harkonnen, like not having limbs, that kind of thing. I'm just a big nigga. And <laughs> like women find that really attractive Certain gay men find that really attractive, but like online, it's like it's harder to translate that kind of thing. But I don't know. It's just like big, jolly, fucking hypersexed men with big appetites have been something all throughout history. <laughs> You know, like, 
like you're you you can be like a small like thin like weak retiring man with a, no appetite who has to like learn how to eat and like you're, you're the sad shrimpy character or you can be like just a big jolly man who enjoys all of life which is what i am and well, I mean, like I, uh, uh, you know, I just like uh, talked on the phone with my uh, my former roommate who hates women earlier today, um, and he uh, he was in the Marines. He was in boot camp, and he just got uh, uh, d- dismissed because of a wrist injury. But he's gonna like go back to the Marines or whatever. Like, uh, you know, he has he'll have no issue with it because he's like naturally good at it. Um, but like over the year that we were roommates, like he got like incredibly in shape. Like he got in- like incredibly strong um like he was like a true like bat guy like he was like a, a genuine like uh uh like high iq like bap devotee um and you know he's like self-aware enough to like be a little skeptical of it like the fact that there's this guy who comes from eastern europe and then like convinces um young men to join the nato military so that he can brag about his accomplishments to his jewish friends but like at the end of the day like it's still like a very appealing vision like the vision is there you always have to respect like when someone has such a clearly realized idea of what their view of the world is right but like he um you know got really strong and then he was in boot camp and he's like when i was in boot camp i had to get not only like i was already strong but i had to get thin and he was just like that was world changing. And he literally like told me he prescribes, like you have to burn 3000 calories a day. Um, yeah, that is the best way to live. Um, but which this is, this is something that is like, I've been on constant diets and exercise regimens my entire life. Like in ninth grade, I, this was the early days of like the South beach diet, avoiding carbs. And so I lost like 40, 50 pounds before I went back to school and I would run all the time. And now, now, uh, running is really looked down upon by the, Right wing, I right, still love right it. Like body I, 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 I know, I, I know. Running. They like they um, hate it because it cuts down on muscle mass, but I think it has its rightful. Place. I, it, I think that like it's like a really good thing for a man to be able to run a, a triathlon, even if he doesn't do it often. Like I think it's like a good. It really feels like level of or something fitness. after you run even a mile as like a normal person. Um, no, and like the first time I ran a mile, like it was with my dad and like, I was like miserable by the end of it. And, but that was the beginning of something great. Like I know like what that meant for me. And like, you know, as much as like, you know, we want to like counter signal, like the BAP guys because they're cringe or like soul bras, especially cringe. Like, uh, you know, it, it speaks to something primordial. And I think it for gives... children of divorce and children of single mothers, especially if they never had anyone <sighs> tell them that like, <laughs> exercising was good or anything like, but I grew yeah. up with like a mother who was constantly dieting. So this is why you see like Kathy as such a, uh, such a pagan totem uh, looming over everything that I do. I'm obsessed with Kathy because I'm obsessed with this particular cultural moment of the late 70s and the 80s where like the working woman was constantly on a diet 
and uh, that comic expresses all of these anxieties of that time, and I basically feel like Kathy. Um, but right now, what we've seen uh, from several years of Mishima, Sun and Steel, and BAP discourse is that people have this snottish, uh, snotty, gross... Um, attitude towards weight loss and towards uh, self-improvement like they 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 see because of sun and steel the you know i love mishima mishima is great but mm-hmm. sun and steel it fucking sucks i fucking hate it uh because mm-hmm. sun and steel it wasn't a personal favorite of mine i but... fucking hate it and it it tells everyone that you must not listen to anyone who is spiritually fat. So so it gives people this idea that anyone they listen to has to be thin, which is ridiculous and absurd because think about like the great men, the great male businessmen throughout history. You think they were all like thin? You think they were all bodybuilders? <laughs> no, they're gross, fat old men. Um, but it gives people this kind of license to see everyone who does not meet their exacting standards as spiritually fat. And so they shouldn't listen to them, um, which is obviously gross. Uh, but it's like this, this weird kind of like, uh, anorexic girl click that forms, around Mishima Sun and Steel ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. I uh I don't know. I I still I guess I gravitate towards anything that feels very vital and sunlit. Um I'm very privy to like the cringe in that. Um and because all I you had like to they do lack... to self-actualize was cut your hair like Anne Hathaway. <laughs> You were thin already. <laughs> but like I genuinely like look like um I genuinely feel like a type difference in terms of like my body from like cuz like I had like short hair like 4 years ago. Um but I was not as fit as I am today and I know what the difference is in real life. Like I know that there is just wait till you get to 30 where your metabolism starts, stops working. (laughs) I I think it's already catching up with me right now because I'm always in like bulking. Yeah. It's Uh, really funny. uh, The current like uh, seed oil fanaticism, like it's all these like guys who are about like 25 years old bragging about how much butter they eat. And it's like, how can this possibly (laughs) go wrong? Um, You know, like, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's it's, it's literally me. uh, 25 year old. That's why, that's why this new little health trend has benefited you. Uh, Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I feel it catching up with me. I think that maybe my, uh, my friend's, uh, 3000 calories per day regimen is physically optimal, if not like practically achievable. Um, but, uh, I don't know. Like I, like I said, like I just like maintain this sentimental af- affinity for these things because 
I like to see people get better. Like, um, you know, there's so many like uh, uh, friends in my life, like people that I genuinely like have love for. And I just wish I could like take over and invade their life and like make their decisions for them for like a month. I've always surrounded and... myself with thin, hot people. So <laughs> uh -huh. like, you know, it was a kind of like... Well, I'm often like very impressed with my friends too. Like I, you know, I think that they are attractive and like I see the aesthetic potential. Um, but, you know, there are people that are very close to me that I'm just like, like, I wish they were more motivated. I wish that, you know, I wish that I could be the executive, like kind of like controlling switches and i'm not even that in control of myself but like uh you know a few basic things uh could go a long way um but yeah and like having to let go of that is like a challenge like i think it's good to let go of that um i love that you're so self-reflective self and so the vastness of your knowledge continually impresses me having listened to your whole show uh, with how you. with how young you are, honestly, you have this maturity that's really hypnotic and amazing. And I can't imagine myself having the same maturity. But the the way you talk about like personal beauty, uh, you know, without knowing just how beautiful you are, it's it's really <laughs> really funny. <laughs> Uh, well, that's that's like the kindest thing anyone's ever said to me. Um, <laughs> it's like death in Venice. I'm like talking to Tadzio and, you know. Wow. <laughs> well, I don't even know what to say to that. That's like, uh, it just like incredibly flattering. And, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate it. That's all. <laughs> um, but I guess there's a, a couple of things I wanted to ask you about uh, other than this, since we've been dwelling on like the BAP topic adjacent like for like about like 30 minutes and I feel like, we're, you know, we basically get it like I, you know, yeah. I think I understand exactly what you're saying and um, I think you understand my sentimental affinity for it. But um, like the um, I guess uh, if you don't mind transitioning a little bit. Um, our our uh four thirty eight <laughs> transitioning yeah <laughs> yeah 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 if you don't mind uh, uh changing i love i love that you're such a thoughtful director of the show that's something i love yeah. it, it's literally like the mood is different every time but um <laughs> Uh, but you know, you're like someone that can just like, uh, go off and kind of, uh, wax poetic about almost anything. So, um, but one of the things that, uh, when you, uh, talked to me about my show that you gravitated towards in particular was the idea, like my rehabilitation of Orientalism, which started out as like a mission statement as, and has since kind of evolved into like an aesthetic affectation of the show. But, you know, to kind of like get back to my roots, I guess uh, I wanted to uh, catch your thoughts on like Orientalism as a phenomenon. Like Orientalism um... <laughs> is one of my biggest influences, uh, mainly because of the way that any Western Westerner or American can tell that the, uh, fabricated artificial vision of the Orient presented to them um, in the past is superior to the reality of it. So 
Uh, this go goes a long way with perfume, where the great classic perfumes like Guerlain, Shalimar, and Mitsuko are all these kind of fantasies about India and Japan that don't mm-hmm. exist, uh, you know, interlocking with contemporary French culture. Um, they're all very fairy tale. Um, I believe that Chinese food, American Chinese food, as uh, depicted in like the 1950s through today, is superior to the real thing, the ethnic, authentic thing. I love like Chinese. Oh, that buff- that's a hard sell. Oh yeah, huh. yeah, <laughs> like. I love like Chinese buffets. I love the whole. Well, Chinese buffets are good. Um, yeah. yeah, and like uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, General Tso chicken. Like oh yeah, you know. where it's just lumps of fried chicken boiled in cough syrup. Beautiful. Um, it is no, I get that, but um, Mitsuko, I don't know. I like, I, I, I know. I no, I actually your, like, I just Instagram like grabbed my like bottle Mitsuko. of Mitsuko across the desk because that's like probably like the perfume that I wear the most. Wait, um, what is? Mitsuko. That's so romantic, you know. And when I'm like trying to, I'm like smelling it right now, and it always like gives me like a different sense every time. Uh, I'm like, I I find it really hard to like nail down and like actually like get like a particular like uh, uh, a vibe from it. But like Mitsuko, like, um, on one hand, like, I want to say like there's nothing Japanese about it at all, that it is like very archetypally French. Um, but then I get like, you know, I just like spray it on and I'm like, oh, there's like a subtlety to it. There's like this like like very shadowy Japanese forests as you would envision them in 1920. I just sprayed it on. Oh, it's horse piss. Yeah. That's probably like Mitsuko. Uh, um, how did you get into Mitsuko? Shalimar. Um, probably through you. Well, thank you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Uh, no, mi- like, uh, Mitsuko, it's 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 like I think I blind bought it from Fragrantica, and it's like the one that stuck. Um, I mean, like all of them have stuck in different ways. Like I really like, uh, ba- you know, I buy things based on like the vibe that I have, and uh, um, I can't think of really anything that I didn't like. Well, I actually blind bought Dracar Noir. And uh, uh, I just gave it away to a friend Drakkar of mine. Dracar Noir is like, disturbing to guys because you don't want to be cologne guy. And that smell is still associated with cologne guy. Whereas like, Mitsuko, something yeah. like Mitsuko um, is such a like isolated, psychedelic experience free from anything. Like you don't smell Mitsuko on Free anyone, from connotations, you know? yeah. Like I, uh, uh, you know... I actually, uh, well, I was wearing like Koros earlier today, but um, that was like uh, my perfume of the day, which is one that I usually only wear to work out, but there are a few outfits that I have that I just like uh, wear it with. But um, yeah, like Mitsuko to me, like that, the Oriental side of it is much less on the nose than like with Shalimar, which to me, like I totally get what they're going for when they say this is India. And I think it's really interesting how... um, uh, 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 Lultra is like basically like meant to be like Shalimar but authentic. Yes, 
Oh my god, um, you are clearly like, a I think, TPM listener. You get this, but, but like I think that are, are you into a uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Dosun, also by um, uh, Death Their Tuberose, which I think is pretty mediocre. Um, really, I think when I listen, when I smell Dosun, um, what I get is um, oh no, 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 sorry, shit. Um, I'm thinking of Tamdao. Tamdao is the sandalwood. Yeah, yeah, Tamdao. When I smell Tamdao, the sense that I get from it is that Tamdao is trying to do what's with Southeast Asia and Vietnam, what um, Lotra did with India, where it's like, what if we just made like a Southeast Asian perfume, but like instead of being fantasy, it's like it actually smells like faux. Like <laughs> um, Lotra is you know. this revolutionary thing where yeah it's uh-huh. it, it's from 1972 and it smells literally like Indian food and it's shocking to this day and I can't imagine how shocking it was when it came out um, but yeah all the Gerland fantasies of the orient are so like beautiful and elaborate and embroidered with so many different uh you know pretty aspects like uh shalimar for all its fantasies of india and temples in india smells like vanilla pound cake and incense and mitsuko um, is much stranger where it has this Japanese influence, but it smells like piss on attic floorboards and uh, peaches. <laughs> like, I, I find it and potpourri. I can't describe what it smells like because it's, it's shocking. always different. It's, it, it's, it's, like it's always different. Like I don't like. I genuinely like. Um, get a different sense from it basically every time that I apply it. Um, I, Mitsuko is like just like uh, the gift that keeps on giving. Like uh, it really is. Uh, I'm like two thirds of the way through my bottle right now, and I still don't have a handle. I'm um, I'm shocked to see I pulled out my bottle, and I'm like uh, two thirds of the way through my bottle as well. And the fact that you can obtain uh, a work of art like this um for like $45 is completely fucking insane. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's why I got it in the first place was that it was so uh, uh affordable. Um and uh you know, it's been very rewarding to me and um you know, I don't think of myself like, you know, Mitsuko it has like this like reputation that it's like so autumnal and like cool and kind it's of what uh, women um, used to just wear. And like cool. I um I don't know if if you were to describe it on paper, I don't know if it would be that relatable to me, if it would like feel like a natural fit for my temperament. Um but something about it it just clicks it's a little more subtle like i think like shalimar like the glow of shalimar is just like such an instinctive immediate pleasure shalimar is so undeniably sexy where you can imagine it wafting up from sweaty cleavage and mitsuko is just like a woman you don't know 
Um, yeah. It's a strange woman uh, who has committed herself to this weird work of olfactory art. Um, uh-huh. Oh, I was wondering, uh, do you have a do you have a white shoulders episode in the works, or? Um, yes, I Is actually that on your do. Radar? Um, I'm gonna do uh, several John Waters episodes, but. The oh yeah, <laughs> po- uh, polyester uh, imitation of life episode is going to be wide shoulders. I think that's probably like the most unabashedly like feminine. It really that is I, uh, <laughs> that I enjoy. Um, but like, I feel like just like it, to and like that is like a textbook case of like old lady. Like everyone uses that as a pejorative, but like, but who meets these like, old that, ladies I get it. who are actually? I get it. That. Like. <laughs> And like just to just like own that and to be like I'm into old lady and the name that's like such a powerful gesture, yeah. And the bottle like with beautiful relief of like the face like totally. And that's like ten dollars. I got mine for John Waters polyester (laughs) and Douglas Sirk imitation Uh, of life. That's what that's going to be paired with. It's it's so cool. Um, and you know like. Me and uh, Scott were very much of, like, the same mind on this, where we're just, like, it's really cool, like, being, like, unabashedly, like, a dude. Like, nobody would ever, like, uh, uh, think that we were anything but male, right? Um, And yet, to just be like, no, this granny perfume, like, this is my, like, signature scent. People don't even uh, psychologically, you know, connect that with the grannies, and when they smell it, on you on you a young hot guy like uh the the connections go so deep um they can't even perceive a young hot guy (laughs) wearing it but that makes me really happy that you're like keeping it alive for the younger generation Uh (laughs) i'm glad i uh uh, um but yeah i guess like to a you know i I probably like in my heart like 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 animalic stuff, but it's like hard to get like at a good level. Um, because it's disturbing. Best ones yeah. that I found, other than like uh, like I wear Jovan Musk like not infrequently, and I have Royale Musk um, as well, which is but like Mitsuko uh, is the mo- is way more animalic than any of that shit. Mitsuko smells like piss covered mm, floorboards. I yeah, just yeah yeah, and also like uh uh. Well, you know, uh, uh, like, uh, our friend, uh, petty bourgeois Protestant, uh, uh, he like, he, I was wearing Koros one day. He's like, what are you wearing? And I'm like, that's Koros. You have it. Like, (laughs) um, and he's just like, it smells a lot cleaner on you. And we theorized (laughs) that his is dirtier because he bought it. Everybody's self-conscious about the animalics um, they buy. I wish mine was dirty on me. Like I, I I've like never the idea thought of, like, dirt, very dirty. dirty. It smells very like dirty animalics. But it's but it's a different vibe when like I I usually most of the time when I wear it, it's like to go running like on a run <laughs> like and so by the time I get to the beach like twelve miles later, I'm like sweaty and like I start to like feel like the like sexual side of and it. This you is know? not sexy <laughs> at all to me. You know. Um, but, um, uh, that guess, is so, uh, I'm, I'm receiving that information totally objectively. Animalics uh, I've found are a niche line called, uh, Anonyme. 
Do you know that? No, I've never tried them. There are like three of them. There's like anonym black, anonym white, and anonym gold. And like they're anonymously made by, but like it's basically on good authority that they're made by a perfume, um, uh, a perfumist of great uh, renown. Um, and they're just like really like beautiful each one in different totally different ways like uh beautiful like filthy like animalic like one of them's like kind of like more on like the powdery side like one of them's more on like the sweaty side and one of them's more on the um uh boozy side, i have I to say. as far as those lines go recommend the neanderthal line which is totally <sighs> brilliant which we're covering on our I still say R. It's just me. Or I don't know that, but um, um, I it's, it's a, just me talking to guests. Uh, but uh, we are I matched with a uh, with a with forty-two-year-old submission, and now that <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. That's uh, that that'll be a very special episode because I've covered submission before. I haven't got around to Camp of the Saints, and I haven't watched not Camp of the my Saints. Daughter, is fucking but... amazing. It's like the Fountainhead, but the mapping out of the media is explicitly racist. So <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, it is an amazing book. But I'm, I'm yeah. really, I'm excited. I, uh... to, I'm excited to share it with the fans. <laughs> yeah yeah it sounds like uh very special it's just like one of those racist tomes that i never got around to but i'm sure i would enjoy it's i think worth uh, in season two in season two i want to like uh go to i i want to um do an episode about on the inequality of races by arthur de Gobineau, um <laughs> which is like a brilliant work of like racist polemic but um <laughs> and it's like the most like 19th century book ever written but <laughs> And it's like one of those titles, like on the Jews and their lies, but it's just like so uh, magnetic. Um, but okay, I, I've got to um, go soon. My boy, boyfriend is okay. getting mad. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, you know, it's I been five to hours. I would go for any jealousy on his part. No one part. Stopping me. Yeah. But yeah, I guess uh, you know you you said that uh, this uh, Orientalism is like big in perfume, and like that's like a. Um, I don't know, like, it just seems like very exciting when one culture like engaged with the other. It's like the same appeal as like transgressing on gender boundaries. I think it's, it's because it like relies on like a preexisting vocabulary. Yeah. Um, so something that is intelligible because that culture means something positive to like subvert it. It's exciting because it's like, so, um, uh, because of the framework that you're destroying yeah that's what gives it its power um so and also it's just the pure appeal of the beauty of what you're presenting like you're presenting a beautiful fantasy of exotica of these countries that you can't connect to which has enormous value and which people discount uh, today uh, with the various justifications about racism and sexism, but really the oriental fantasy of the East is better than the reality. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I guess that's a fantasy that I've tried to project on this show um, by hearkening back to like the 1930s before the masks were a question. You know, they had like they had they had the Japanese. I have to say, I, to I loved your show even before I listened to it. I was drawn in by the the icon, you know, the 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 main <laughs> image and the length of the episodes. When I saw that combined with the oh, fact great. that your episodes well, this were, like, is, we're breaking three hours long, we, you know. Yeah, we're breaking new ground here. Like, this is, like, not even, like, as, like, a performative, like, kind of, like, act of, like, oh, this is a marathon podcast, but just by virtue no, of, like... No, I could go on of, for uh, a million years, uh, but influence. people Yeah, yeah, people no, this is, like, fire. This is fire, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, well, thank you, you know, and it's, like, uh, I took after, like, the perfume nationalist school of, like, naming the show in that I wanted it to be... Um, uh, something that stands out as like so bizarre and like to me it's like very normal if you take it in its context and you're like oh it's like toilet in like the european sense it's like toilet in like the archaic <laughs> sense it's twilight. nothing really that weird about it yeah yeah but like um and that's like the name of the poem and that's exactly what he means by it and i'm aware of like the scatological humor of it because that's not something i've ever shied away from either but like um you know to me it's not that weird like it's just like uh <laughs> it's not that weird um, to me either it's just like good podcast but yeah and like it. but i like sat on like the first episode for like a month because i hadn't figured out like a title for the show that i was ready to commit to Aww. and so like i literally like didn't know what i was going to call I it when i recorded the first toilet. episode i i've listened it, to it the took, whole story well, thank you, and uh, there's much more to come. Uh, you I'm know, this so is episode, glad to be a part of episode of the twenty out of ninety nine, and there are big things on the horizon. Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's like that. Um, it came to, when I read that in Ezra Pound. I'm like, that's it. That's like the title of the podcast. Like done. Like it's over. Like uh, all my tribulations. Like like I I thought about it for like six months. Um, basically between like uh, a walk through the mist and like June of 2021, I was like, what am I going to call my podcast? Walk and then I was like, I don't know mist. what I'm going to call it, but I'm going to, I'm going to uh, record it it's now so to put good, the fire though. under my ass. I love it. I, you know, I can't picture it as anything else. Like uh, I, I've that, been walking um, through supermarkets it, it, listening to you talk about the black woman incense and like all of this. I, I love your, <laughs> I love your podcast. Thank you, thank you. And you're probably like the person that's like the most devoted to it because <laughs> I'm pretty sure like vanishingly few people have like listened to like the whole thing. I've so. listened to the even like close friends of mine. Get it, getting your so you understand me better than most, but like getting my friends to like listen to my podcast is like pulling oh, teeth. Oh yeah, like, they hate it. They're all like, "Hey, self-absorbed." It's nice too long. This. Like my my dad, who you know is like a great influence on my life, has never wronged me in any way. It's just like your episodes are too long. I really think like it would be better if they were about like 40 minutes and then I would be more willing oh to listen. Oh my God. Like, my thoughts along those lines are like when I realize it's going to be a guest I don't like and it's like 20 minutes in, I'm like, well, I have two hours and 40 minutes of this <laughs> that I'm going to have to put up yeah. with. But, well, I'm uh, always disappointed when people like budget their time. Like uh, yeah, uh, like, last week, I, I haven't released this episode yet. I have to like sit on this. Uh, I'll probably sit on this recording that we did because for like about a week because i have to i still really well i have to 
No, I have to release my episode with Michael Rechtenwald, and he only got his audio feed back to me like yesterday. So and so I have to like put that out and then space it out. I mean, he was great. Like, uh, uh, I think it's a great episode. But yeah, I was just like, oh, he's budgeting his time. He only has two hours. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's whatever. Anyway, you've been uh, perfectly generous with your time. I guess I should uh, uh, let you go. But um, well, yeah, if you have any so uh, parting words. It was delightful. I'm glad to be a part of your show, Great. which I love. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for all the support you've given to the beautiful toilet. Like, it's, it's sincerely, like, uh, uh, inspiring and flattering on a level that I find difficult to state without, a, without resorting to outright flattery. Um, and uh yeah like you know we're fucking in this like we're i don't know like i just like fucking had to create something i didn't know what i was doing i'm very embarrassed about the early episodes as you know not because of anything that my guests did or anything or uh want of like interesting guests because i didn't know how to run the show but i feel like the fact that there's such a learning curve really proves that it is like an art form in and of itself and like that it is like a true art form that takes effort and discipline and uh, uh practice yeah. Um, yeah so yeah i mean if, uh any uh final remarks from jack mason uh host of the perfume nationalist uh not uh, himself the, the perfume solo nationalist, host but, of uh, perfume nationalist uh subscribe for the full story at patreon.com slash perfume nationalist but uh thank you this has been a really delightful nick uh, I'm glad. I, I, the feeling's mutual. So, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'll. Uh, I can't maybe I'll, it's been uh, five hours. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I might like trim like parts of it, but like, you know, I'm not like super he- heavy on editing these days. So I feel like the end result is going to be like four and a half. <laughs> but, Perfect. Um, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, thanks a lot uh, uh, for your generosity and time. And uh, also, you know, just in uh, uh, promoting the podcast, you know, um, my friends like messaged me uh, the other day when, when uh, Anna was like in the reply, like they were just like, did you see Anna in the replies on Jack's beautiful toilet post? <laughs> <laughs> That's really um, cute. I'm yeah, I'm so glad to you're, help the you're beautiful spreading the toilet. gospel, uh, yeah. and I'm more than glad to do my my small part to help the perfume national. Well, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate so. it. So, all right. So yeah, uh, look forward to uh, hearing from you soon. Uh, we will meet again. All right. I'm a sucker. <laughs> けるわ。みんな私の Oh,